everybody. Welcome to another episode of Monday Python Radio. It feels like, oh, and we haven't done this in like forever with all these different podcasts we're doing and everything. I don't know, man. I haven't talked to you in, in so long. I, well, you, you, you gave me the... It, it has to be close to because you gave me the week off before you went to Texas. Then you went to Texas and I, I musked around with the interns to keep them busy because if you don't keep them busy, they just, you know, start pulling their own hair yeah. out and chewing on things so um <laughs> then when you came back we did the big podcast and then now we're here and it's like almost the end of june so yeah, yeah. so right. so we're <clears throat> we're gonna be uh we're gonna be talking with ryan mcveigh uh tonight and um uh, oh and i know this is this is uh this is something near and dear to your heart indonesian pythons we're gonna get into that you you had no me at Timor. Like, you had me at Timor. white lips yes good Luz. Good. Uh, you know, all the all the ones you love, man. It's uh, you know, one of the Ryan questions. Is, is, but one of the questions on here is like, why Timor pythons? It's a dumb question. Why not Timor <laughs> pythons? Last time I let well, you do this, Jesus. Well, you know, I've had in and outs with the Timor pythons. This personal love. I know they're all here <laughs> for, for years and years. Rob Stone has done the same. His are here but, too. Uh, Apparently, I'm where NPR dumps their Timors. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I'm I'm okay with that. So so yeah. uh, and and then Ryan uh, also just uh, started um, uh, Vitech. Uh, is that right? Vitech uh, products, um, which probably you not, know to me. Yeah, I know. I know. Screw it. We'll just do it. All right. Just keep going. Um, Roll. But but anyway, uh, really like cutting edge uh, type of. I I look at this and I think like wow. I think of when I started in the reptile hobby and you had the little red bulb, <laughs> you know, maybe a hot rock. You, you kept it in the, the glass aquarium with the, uh, you know, the metal sides and the slate bottom stone, and all that kind of stone stuff. Slate bottom, yeah. <laughs> you know, it weighed a uh, metric you had to put the ton. bricks on top of the, uh, up on the top of the cage and we've come quite a, quite a long way. So I, I mean, we're going to get it, into that. I mean, I think at this point, if you're doing it like the way of like, I have it in a 10 gallon tank with a brick on top of it, you're doing it because you're cheap and like, come on, man. Like, it's not like the stuff isn't here anymore. It is readily available. So, yeah, yep. I think I think I see like the reptile hobby going towards um, and I'm curious to see Ryan's thoughts on this when we get them on here in a second. But like I see like, you know, like when we were in, I forget where we, Oh, we were at Southern, Southern carpet, Southeast carpet fest. And yep. when I was there, we, we were at this reptile shop and right across right. was this fish shop. Right. So uh, we went over to the fish shop and like the difference between, um, the, you know, just the, like the fish was like $50, but the caging was like $3,000. Right. You know, right. The you equipment spend... was $3,000. <laughs> right. Right, you spend Whereas fifty bucks sort of on the fish. <laughs> oh yeah, you, know? you spend two two grand on the carpet python. You keep it in a bin shoved under your bed. Like yeah, it's yeah. and that's just the way it is. So I and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, saltwater people spend thousands on their setup. There's some people who I know who set up saltwater tanks that they literally like. I walk in, you see the saltwater tank. You're like, ooh, what's in there? Nothing yet. It must settle. Yes. And they're like, they've got the rock and they're got all the salt water and they've got all the things and it's processing. They're like, I'll probably get some fish in there February, maybe. And it's like, you know, Jesus, I'm like, I, I don't know if I could wait that long. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, 
So we're going to be getting into that stuff, and obviously we'll talk some UV uh, UV uh, lighting and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so it should be good. Um, I don't think we have anything to any kind of like uh, housekeeping or anything, right? Nothing like that. We're I'm good. I'm anxiously waiting my Madagascar hog babies to hatch, but I've been told I need to stop checking on them because I'm disturbing the eggs. And yes, other than that, I got nothing, man. I'm just trying to hang on. So. All right, let's let's do it. Stay yep. away from those mad hog babies. And, yes, distract uh, yeah. me from checking on my incubator. <laughs> yeah, do that. <laughs> All right, Ryan, welcome to Murray Python Radio, man. They're ready to have you, and uh, look forward to the chat. So let's do awesome. It. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, totally. absolutely. So I'm looking at my handy dandy thing, my 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 <laughs> answer questions and such. Like I haven't done this for. 12 years um so brian any new people we have on the show we always want to ask what got you into reptiles i have a very unique story it's different than i think anybody else's uh i liked dinosaurs damn it and i found a reptile <laughs> and then i went whoa dinosaurs are real then i liked reptiles and then that's the I, that, my, yeah I that's about that, it yeah <laughs> after birth um, and since then it's just kind of been a thing. I don't ever remember not chasing toads and frogs and sneaking garter snakes into my backpack at school and then getting told I could not go on the science outings anymore because I should not bring garter snakes into school. But, you know, we tied, I, that was a, an agree to disagree kind of moment. Right. I, yeah, that, that was, that's one of those, <laughs> I'll, listen, I'll stop bringing them in or listen, I'll just stop telling you when I'm bringing them yeah, in. Okay. It was yeah. more of a, I'll stop telling you. Yeah. And yeah, then no. also let like, it was, and it was like the, the, the bully of the school when I was in like middle school, like the tough guy that to- told on me because he was afraid of snakes. It, that it, that, yeah, that's always the way yep. I do love that. I did. I do miss that about doing live shows and stuff like that, where it's the, I pull out the Burmese Python and some giant, you know, guy who can't lift like totally put his arms down um has to run screaming from the room because the little berm came out so absolutely yep that is always enjoyable so what was the first reptile that was kind of that that started it all um to be totally honest i don't really remember Uh, there Mm. was there's a lot of i caught a lot of stuff my stepdad when i was a kid when i was really young was a roofer so he'd bring home like gray's tree frogs that he find and like i kept the first Things I ever kept were like some tiger salamanders that I caught. Um, my like my fifth grade, ho- everybody did like their. We had to do a how to explanation in English kind of thing, and we did like how to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Like, and everybody had to do their own how to presentation. And mine was how to feed my salamanders nightcrawlers. And I brought them into school and like sh- you know did a whole thing. And like awesome. that was just it's just always been my thing. And um yeah i don't i think the first exotic reptile i ever got when i was in eighth grade i spent the whole summer doing yard work for a guy and doing landscaping and uh spent that money on a leopard gecko and it was uh in 1998 pretty sure it was a wild caught one um because it was the it lived to be like 24 years old after i got it when it was an adult um and she actually died from an eye, an eye infection that got into her brain not even from old age she probably still had a couple more years in her and like, oh, wow. it was incredible, man. Like seeing 20 years <clears throat> later, the, the, the inbreeding of morphs and the, the, the leopard geckos, all the different subspecies just being mixed together. Mm-hmm. I, I had a friend that asked me to watch his for a, a couple weeks while he was moving. And um, compared to my like 20 year old wild caught one, didn't even look like the same animal. You would have t- 
totally different species, different toe lengths, leg lengths, skull structure, tail, totally different animal. Um, like she, I fed her like 10, 12, like 12 crickets every two weeks to once a month. And she was happy and healthy and awesome. Um, wow. yeah, no. So that was like, she's actually in a tiny little urn in my little curio like cabinet in our living room. That was, she was <laughs> the one that like really solidified that, like that, that, that the world of reptiles is bigger than what I could find in my backyard. That's really right. cool. And of course I'm sitting here and I'm like, there's subspecies of leopard gecko. <laughs> like, and I'm like that. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, a lot of them have been speciated now, and they're all full. But yeah, the Eublepharus genus has like eight or ten species in it, and it all just got crammed, eaten up by the morph oh, machine. It was anything that came in just got mixed together. So like German <laughs> giant, German like the giant, uh, not the German giants, that's bearded dragons, but the giant leopard geckos. Yeah. All those lineages are actually mixed with uh, Eublepharus angramanu, which is a gigantic. Species of a leopard gecko uh, from Iraq, uh, from Iraq, like 14 inches long, huge animal. Um, and yeah, that's where all the giants are. They're actually just a mix of another species. I would, wow. I'm waiting for the day where somebody puts just like a normal leopard gecko out on a table and people are like, what morph is that? Normal. Yeah. If normal. you could, if that's I could bring what they in, look like, <laughs> if I could bring in wild caught normals, they'd sell for like a thousand dollars a piece because right. they just don't exist in <clears throat> Even the normals you can find are high yellow or het 87 different things. Like there are no normals right. anymore. And then they're mixed and there's so much stuff like, yeah, a wild caught pure Eublepharus macularis would be just like, that would be gold. That'd be worth gold. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's great. That's the great. It's almost like when I, I put a water python out on my table at like, uh, I think it was Tinley and people are like, what morph is that? It's what it looks like. <laughs> like Don't this. put it out on the table at Tinley. Nobody will appreciate it. Just they bring did. it to me, and no. I will appreciate it. No. Liases <laughs> are awesome. Everybody should yeah. own Liasin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's, those are the <laughs> other eggs true. I keep checking are my olive eggs. Those are the other ones that I'm like, hatch. And I'm like, even though I know they're not supposed to hatch till like early July, I'm just still poking them anyway because. Oh, yeah. I, I'm yeah, watching. I, I know how many veins are on my Savu eggs. Good. How many every day? I'm like, oh, new vein. That's a new vein. Oh, that that's one's another one. Look at it developing. I think I see an eye. That something moved. It's bigger than it was yesterday. Yep. Well, I get it. I get uh, it. Savus, those are awesome. I have terrible luck with them. I've sworn off them. Uh, this was 11 years of trying. My female oh. that laid eggs is a 2006 hatch. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, dude. You, you, there is no like give up in my house. I have I have 4.4 and I just got them to breed like the the one to breed this year. Now, you know, between me and, and all the work that I've done over the years and then Erica and, and my wife and us starting to like just go back and forth on different things and tweak things like and talk to people like Gary Shavino and Russ Gurley and those guys that are having a little and none of nobody's having great success, great success. but everybody's having yeah. like a clutch here right. or a clutch there. So we're starting to really nail it down. And this year, both of my females are gravid. One's about to lay eggs in another week or two. Um, and after going 11 years without, with breeding and ovulations and reabsorptions and all of this stuff. And then finally we did it where this year, both of them hit it. I think, I think we might have it kind of figured out a little bit. Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're a little closer to the, whatever the weird formula for Savus, which is absolutely all of my notes, this is backwards and would work for no other species of python. But, but we're going to try it again next year. And if it works, 
then I'll be actually writing up all this stuff and kind of getting a little bit more of a, a, a little bit more information out there for people to hopefully increase the the success that we're having breeding these animals because mm. there's nothing worse than having like four like Gary has four or five females that are ovulating and you're just crossing your finger that one of them gets pregnant yeah. and, or gets gra- and it's yeah. it's just so frustrating <laughs> to see there's probably fifty pairs out there minimum in the U S and you see maybe three to eight clutches a year um, and it's just it's an amazing species of snake goes through a cool ontogenetic color change. They're, I mean, they're a little feisty, but they're really cage defensive. So once you get them out of their enclosure, it's like I can hand them to my – they'll mess you up when they're in their enclosure. Oh, they yeah. think they're the biggest, scariest snake in the world. And the second oh, they yeah. pass that barrier, they're like, no, we're cool. And then I can just hand it to my kids, and they're fine. But it's that territorial behavior. Um, but after that, they're they're small. They only reach like three feet. They're easy mm-hmm. to care for. They're super forgiving and husbandry. Like they're just an awesome yeah. python. They have white eyes. Yeah, right. their, I mean, eyes, their eyes start. Yeah, they start out as little pastel-y orange worms with orange eyes, and then they turn yeah. all brown, freckled, and then their eyes go from orange to white, and they turn black. It's yeah. Yeah. they're just yeah. rad. It's really they're just cool. cool snakes. I, 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 I always re- thought that. <clears throat> I always thought that they were more of a, a time of year. I think I, I don't know. My thought, just talking to all these different Python guys and stuff, and. I thought like timing was weird. Like I think like too often we like kind of like cookie cutter the, uh, you know the the uh, for lack of a better word the ball python breeding formula. You know it's yep. just like okay, cool them down here, pair them up here, here you go, and it's like well, uh, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's. That's kind of what happened with these guys, I think, is everybody kind of thought it's the same thing as any other python or most other pythons. You put them together, you seasonally cool them or you change something seasonally. Um, you put them to, you pair them up. You see a couple a couple locks and copulation. Then you get an ovulation. Once your female ovulates, you pull the male and you just let her do her business for the next couple, like month or a couple months till you get eggs. Right. With Savu right. pythons, yeah. if you pull the male after ovulation, she'll reabsorb 100 percent of the time. She has to be bred after she ovulates and before, or they won't develop eggs. And that's what I'm thinking right. might be one of the major key components to Sabus. And me and Erica have even talked long-term about um, growing up some animals, some females to cycle them and then mm. bring them into some veterinarians and do some studies and research with them to see if we can find out what biological components are different in them that, that causes them to do that. Are they, are there sperm plugs involved? Is the female not even accepting sperm before she ovulates? But is that what causes her to cycle? So there's right. a it's it's just a weird process that I just don't think we totally understand with this species yet, and and that seems to be where a lot of people are having that issue. Right, hundred <clears throat> percent. Cool. Sorry. It's always and, good. Uh, you know, yeah, I, 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 I don't. I do enjoy Savus. They were the only ones that I would have to have uh, multiple sets of tongs because they would wrap up the whole food oh, yeah. prey item and yeah, the tongue, and you just I would just leave it in there with them and go to the next animal because there's <laughs> no yep. point. So Dude, yeah, they never don't eat though. It's awesome. Oh yeah, like, that is true. They never don't eat. All right. Well, yeah, uh, they, they like wrap around the entire. At least that was my all experience. Of it. Like yep. The whole thing. Yep. It's like completely wrapped. Their whole body is wrapped around that thing. Sorry. Go ahead, Owen. That's I, right. I, so, I derailed you. <laughs> you did. You did. The, the intro is now gone. It's totally destroyed. But that's all right. Um, so working for Zilla, can you tell us how that was? 
Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. My background's actually not in marketing, which is what I did for Zilla and managing Zilla. Um, I went to school for engineering, for architectural engineering, um, and my background's in HVAC, uh, plumbing and fire protection design. Um, and then I got my master's in uh, wastewater treatment plant design. And the nice thing is it, it actually weirdly does kind of transition to what we do because uh, all HVAC and plumbing is heat, is heat transfer and thermodynamics, which is reptiles. And then plumbing, which is water moving, which is all the systems and stuff we use and electrical, stuff like that. And then wastewater treatment plants are just a really, really, really big filter. So I mean, yeah. that's yeah. really what it is. I could, if I took a treatment plant and shrunk it down into a box, it'd be the best fish tank filter you could get. <laughs> building so, building size filter. Got it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So it's a filter for the entire city. So Got it. Um, yeah. yeah. So that like it transferred over well and uh, through just my love of reptiles and the passion I've always had, I kind of started the Madison Air Herb Society in 2010 um, and grew that up and just spreading education about reptiles and through that and building myself as uh, my, I guess, name in the hobby and who, and, and my mission to kind of educate everybody, um, Zilla heard of, uh, heard of me and it was part of it was some people had worked there uh, what, that I had worked at at a pet store in college at uh, called Hoffer's Tropic Life Pets in Milwaukee. It was unreal pet store in its heyday man like they had a 10-foot alligator pit i used to get down in and deal with all the gators and stuff like that in the pet store it was just gigantic nice. wow nice. I mean, there was a saltwater reef you could reach in and touch stuff like crazy huge huge awesome store um wow and uh and and through that i just i met a lot of people and then was an engineer and in 2015 uh, a bunch of my some of my friends that work there and their significant others had messaged me and they're like hey you know you, zilla needs a reptile guy you should talk to them and i'm like i'm an engineer and i have a mortgage like the reptile guy is not a job description like what does that mean <laughs> and they're like just talk to them and i'm like i'm not gonna just talk to them to go scoop poop and be a zookeeper like i don't right. i can't do that right. like, I don't, what is the, what, do you, what is what is the job and nobody ever told me they're just like oh you should go talk to them so I kept turning them down, and then uh, the Zilla actually sponsored the Herp Society through those people that I knew. And uh, so the head of HR sent me an email, and she's like, "I know you don't want the job. You made that clear. We're good. Like, but if you know anybody, <laughs> let us know." And she sent me a job description of what the action. It didn't say reptile guy on it. So it was the first thing oh. I read that like had a job description. So I'm like, okay, marketing, uh, you know, market uh, brand man, marketing brand manager. So I'm reading through it. And I'm like, oh. I've never done any of this professionally, but like to start the Herp Society, all the stuff that I've done, the numbers background I have, like none of this is that far out of my wheelhouse. I could learn this. So I'm like, all right. So I sent a message to her back. And I'm like, you know what? Now that I know that what the job is and actually is like, uh, let me come in and talk to you guys. And, and, and then if, if, I, if we don't think it's a good fit, I got some good people for you. I think I can send you away. So we went in and it was pretty quick that that was it. Like, so, you know, I went through and I interviewed with uh, all the heads of the departments and the, the, um, the general manager of the division and yeah, had an offer a couple days later and that was it. So in 2005, I started, uh, I started at Zilla in, uh, in January, early January, 2015 and, uh, ran, uh, the, the, the brand and the direction and all the innovation of the products and everything, uh, all the way up until, uh, January this year. Um, and then, uh, oh wow, yeah. yeah. And then move to a consulting contract uh, that will be ending here in a little bit. So, um, just kind of helping them out with the last of what they needed, and helping guide them as well, and give them information, and just kind of continue to help the, their mission because I still very much appreciate Zilla and what they do and what they, I was able to do with that brand and and my time there. But 
um, yeah, it was it was fun. It was really cool to have a platform that big to be able to push better husbandry and and better ideas about husbandry and how we see these animals. So it was a really cool way for me, other than just you know being able to change products and bring cooler things to the to the public. It was really cool for me to be able to have a big platform to get a bigger message out there, push USR, sponsor them, and stuff like that. So yeah. um, it was it was really awesome to be able to ma- manage that brand for the time that I did it, and um, learned an enormous amount about the industry. And I've I've been in a really unique situation where I've been able to see I've seen the zoo side through through people I've worked at with or worked with zoos. Um, I've seen the veterinary side through stuff I do with Arav and through my wife, who um, is an exotic veterinary uh, veterinary technician for fifteen years. Um, and then the pet side, all the way from breeders to small breeders to big, huge facility breeders to the people who supply the pet stores and to the box chains and distribution. I mean, I've been able to see just a really huge view of every single detail of the industry and the hobby that we're, that we're in. So it really gave me a really cool um, perspective in that. And that was something that I really appreciated taking away from that. That's very cool. I mean, I, the problem is, is like if I was at Zilla, like after all that, I would make sure that everything you had, like your name tags, the reptile guy, like I would make sure that was plastered. <laughs> it literally was everywhere. a thing already. Like, all right, yeah. I just got called Reptile Ryan. So like it was there just a normal done. central. Like Good. everybody knew who I was, even people in different divisions. Like there's people that work at Nylabone who know who I am. I'm the reptile guy. Yeah. Good. Good. Just as long as that was part of it, you know that that's good. So, <laughs> yep. What led to start uh, Vivitech? Like what led Viv-tech. you to break so, it? Vivtech. <laughs> yeah. So Vivtech. Um, after kind of realizing that I was gonna, you know, like it was time to kind of separate from Zill a little bit and start opting, uh, looking at what I could do. Um, the Central's got some plans and some things that they want to do with the brand that is not in line with where I was going with it. And so that's what made sense to just kind of let them keep running their thing. And and I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I've always thought how the hobby could do better. And mm-hmm. one thing that that's interesting that I think it, it, we don't all think about is that the major three reptile brands, Zilla, Zumed, and Exoterra in the United States are the ones that are really who we get our products from. I mean, right. we all have, we get PVC enclosures. There's a bunch of stuff around me that's not by any of those brands. We know people make that stuff. It's a little more specialty, but it's very niche in its in certain markets. We all know, everybody knows a PVC maker, you know, or a rack builder somewhere <laughs> locally. There's always a guy, there's always people who are doing it really well. You might order from across the country for those guys, mm-hmm. but it's not hard to find those guys. Um, but they're usually pretty local. Um but there's other than those three brands, there's nobody really bringing on a national level another level of husbandry tech uh, equipment to the hobby and to people. So, and the problem with that is, is that those we're, we're all, I think that we're all waiting for something better. We're waiting for better technologies. We're waiting. We know it exists because we're using cameras from home security. We're using <laughs> sensors that are used for humidors and other stuff. We get right. that there's stuff out there. And, and we're having to kind of become the MacGyvers that all reptile people, people are, you know, and, and tweak this stuff to make it work for us. But nobody was really stepping up. And we were waiting for those major brands to do it. The problem is those major brands, the majority of where their sales are is those entry level consumers at big box stores and pet stores, which right. really is important. We need that. Like we need those stores to exist because they bring more people into this hobby than all of us combined ever could. 
And then we, there's a, there's a positive negative to that. You know, we know that we know that they need better education. We wish there was better opportunities for that stuff out there. But the way I look at it is at least they have a bigger range to get more people in. And as those people get in, then they run into problems. Then they go to Facebook and Google to start searching for answers. Right. And then hopefully they find us and the community. And that's where we're able to get them and really drive them in and and really get them solidified and, and knowledgeable and researching and learning and get them on the right path. So I kind of look at it as a necessary evil that we need to get those people to us. Um, but yeah, but those companies aren't going to be able to walk away from those those entry level because that's a massive portion of their sales. The majority of their sales is that level. So they need to do that. And to focus on like racks or things like that for the breeders, there's a lot of us, but there's not a lot of us when you compare us to how many people are going out to get their one leopard gecko or their one corn snake. So they just don't have the, they can't fund that kind of thing because they wouldn't have the financials to do it. So Mm -hmm. I kind of looked at that one. Yeah, but I could make that happen and I could do that and I could go direct and I could skip the different channels of distribution and I could go direct to people, direct stores. There's a lot of different ways that, and there's a lot of weaknesses within the way that products are, are shipped around the country and things like Amazon are changing the way the marketplace is happening. And it's just, that's kind of where VivTech came from is like, I want to do better. I know there's better technology out there and I know I can get it to people in a, in a more cost effective way and more easily into their hands with better information. Screw it. Let's do it. And that was, that's what it was. Me and Erica just went, you know what? That's it. Let's just do it. We're just going to figure it out. We're going to do it. Um, you know, and, and through all the stuff with the, the, you know, working with manufacturers around the world and um, design and all that stuff, you know, I've got, uh, patent that my name's on through what I did with Zilla and all of that different stuff that we did there. It's, it's, it really gave me an, a, an opportunity to, to, to see all of those channels. And I'm like, I can do that. I can, I can already see everything I need to do, everything I need to put together because that's literally what I've been doing for six years just for somebody else. Right. Right. Okay. That's awesome. <clears throat> so can you walk us through how do you bring a rep to a product to market pretty much a reptile product out there. Um, yeah. So re- starting out right now, I'm trying to look, I'm looking out there for things that kind of already exist in other, other, other aspects of our lives or other industries that we could use, but we may see, may not see, or may not have easy access to or affordable access to. So like, right. um, things like that. So I'm trying to find those kind of things now while we're also working on developing some things, um, probably about a month from now, we'll start putting some big things into development, looking at some patents for changing some things up. So um, there's a lot coming. Not much I can talk about on that side. But gotcha. what it really is, is it's going out and finding manufacturers that make a product and then working with them to get that product within specs of what I need it to do. So I have them send me a sample, some samples. We test them. Um, all of the bulbs that we brought to Schaumburg were individually test, but tested by hand three times by three different people. Um, so that's something that I take very seriously is to make sure that until, until we're on a very big manufacturing level where we're bringing in thousands and thousands at a time, I'm going to be checking every single one to make for the first year, probably at least to make sure that we're getting that consistency and that I can trust mm-hmm. those products. Cause I'm not comfortable selling somebody that I would, something that would one that would be out of spec and could harm an animal or two just that's out of spec and that may not be safe or that may not work like they want it to. I'm just not comfortable with that. So we're, we're working on making sure that the quality is there. Um, once we know it's good, then we work with the manufacturer to um, get into production and ship it over to us. And uh, my wife, Erica is pretty amazing with, she does a lot of art and this year she got thrown into 
here's Adobe Creative Suite. Figure out how to do packaging. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was it. Like, but she nailed it. Our packaging is really kind of cutting edge and cool yeah. looking. It looks way different looks than reptile products generally would, which was a big far, like fight for her, for, for high fight for her. She uh, she was like, I want to use purple and black. And the, she kind of started telling me what she wanted. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like reptile yeah, stuff no, no, at all. That no, sounds no. so. I'm like, no, like, you know, white what? box with a bunch of yeah. plants and a lizard. And yeah. she's like, no, <laughs> why? So I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Like, I think everything you're doing is wrong. Um, you know, because obviously I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, but of course. at the same time, if you can prove, if you can show me research that proves what you're trying to do or that can convince me otherwise, you, then you win. Like, just show me something. Why do you want to use purple? So she actually did. She went and she dug out all these studies and all this research she was doing on marketing and how people perceive colors, what different colors spark what feelings in people, like whether it's a, a newer wow. technology or a calmer yeah. feeling. And she did this incredible research into the colors that are used in our brand. Um, and then wow. after that, I'm like, well, yeah, screw it. Just do whatever you want. Yeah, I just defeated you with science. So that's <laughs> you what got it, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how both of us are too. And I like, that's how I am. I'm very like, look, I, I know what I know. And, and I know what things have worked and haven't worked in the past. And if you want to try something that I've never seen work, I'm going to tell you no. But if you can justify how you're going to do it different or you have some kind of path or you can lay something out for me, I'm willing to let you try it as long as you can justify what you want to do. But if you come to me and you're like, I just have an idea. That's great because ideas are like back ends. Everyone's got one and they all never go. But I there, appreciate so. that because it's not yeah. like, you know, we, we always talk about, um, I, I mean, my fiance talking about uh, like there's always the, the tax that you pay for a product because now it's a, a pet product. Like the same like ceramic little dish at a restaurant yep. store comes in cases for like five bucks at the pet store. They take it out of the case. They put a little lizard on it and then they stick it on the shelf for $15. Like, yeah, and that's, and that's, I appreciate it that it's like, not only are we considering this, we're not just taking things and slapping a lizard on it and being like, pay me now. Yep. Like that's a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. And there's some stuff out there like that. And, and a big part of that cost is distribution. It's the distribution mm, right. channel. So when you talk about the major pet products chains like Petco, PetSmart, those guys, their margin requirements are really, really high. They have right. to make a lot of money on everything, which means that like for a company like for any company like, say, VivTech to buy a product and put our margin in it so that we can reliably like it sounds stupid. And I know people hate it, but like, guess what, guys, everybody has to make money to keep growing and yeah. surviving yeah, like yeah, sure like, you just buy yeah. it and sell it to you at cost because then that's cool for you but i'm yeah. homeless and i won't be able to do that long i can only do that for, like, go a well for a bit and then i'm gone yeah, yeah so. exactly like it's not gonna be as beneficial to you in the long run um right. so like everybody's got to have their markups you got the manufacturer that puts their markup on it the brand or whatever and then right. they sell it to say a petco who puts their margin on it and by the time it gets to the shelf it's incredible it's a very high expensive item and then when you talk about independent pet stores, that's two-step distribution. That's even worse. So now I'm taking this product and I'm putting my margin on it. Then I sell it to a distributor who puts his margin on it, who literally is just taking it in, putting it on a different pallet and shipping it to somebody else. And they're going to a pet store who's putting their margin on it and then you buy it. So you're paying four times what that first person paid for it just to move it from one place to the other to the other. Yep. 
So the distribution yeah. channels and like that add a lot of <coughs> cost to things, you know? So with, with that's where kind of with VivTech, we're like, that's why we're going direct to the consumers um, through the website. We're going direct through, uh, even through wholesale, we're going to go direct through our website and we'll, we'll ship stuff directly to our, to the pet stores and things like that. So we can keep as much margin available for them as well as be able for us to succeed and move forward and not outprice our, cons- our consumers. Cause we want to make it so, we can bring really cool technology to, to the to, to the hands of, of keepers, but at the same time, it can't be so expensive that it, it's a, a hard decision on when you're going to bring it in or use it or not. Especially if it's something like UV lighting that's so incredibly imperative that has to be accessible to people. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of UV, um, <laughs> uh, good yeah, segue. So- it seems like your your I guess your first major product release that you guys did was uh, sort of these different bulbs that you have with you know maybe you maybe let explain that to us first like what what's the whole idea behind uh, this new reptile bulb? So so the bulbs are are, are kind of cool. They're definitely different than anything else that's been out there. So um, fluorescent uh, UV bulbs weren't available for reptiles in nineteen until nineteen ninety three. Uh, Gary Bagnell from ZoomEd. Uh, introduced and invented UV lighting for reptiles in fluorescent tubes. Um, from there, it went into metal halide and mercury vapors and other options, but that's been it. Um, nothing's really changed. All of those types have positives and negatives. Fluorescent has the positive in the fact that you don't have heat with it, so the animal can get away from the heat and still absorb UV. And you, with, with coil bulbs, you can create some really great gradients. Um and it, so there's some benefits there. Uh, the downside is all three of them create shortwave UVB, um, a little bit of it, which is dangerous for reptiles. It's in low enough amounts that it's not going to harm them. Um, but if they got close enough, it could. And then they also all produce UVC, which is used in sterilizers and breaks down biological material. So obviously not a good thing to have either. Again, in no. small amounts based on how they're designed, but still there. So with the LEDs, the nice thing is those diodes put out a specific wavelength that I'm able to, we're able to dial those in to exactly where we want them. So there is no UVC, there is no shortwave UVB. Um, they're strictly dialed in to where reptiles and amphibians absorb and use uh, UVB um, in, in those it's like 295 to 315 nanometers right in there, like a little more like, right. like 300, 315. So they're right in there. And then on top of it, we're able to add UVA LEDs to add UVA to the, to the animals enclosures, um, which for a lot of people, they don't know. UVA is probably, in my opinion, is actually more important than UVB. UVB, you can supplement with vitamin D3. You cannot supplement the effects of UVA. And UVA is directly related to serotonin development in the animal's brains. So it kind of it, it, it relates to how they react to their environment and how natural natural behaviors, circadian rhythms, their day-night cycle, um, how they uh, their breeding cycles, how they even see their environment. I mean, without UVA, your animal is basically colorblind because they're missing an entire spectrum of lighting that they can see that we can't. And then on top of it, you're kind of causing them to have seasonal depression permanently because you're se- you're severely affecting the development of serotonin in their bodies. So, okay. so yeah, wow. so with these, we're able to really dial all of that in. And then on top of it, they're three watts. They last four years. And we have a two-year manufacturer warranty on them. Wow. wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then the one wow. bulb that the, our high output bulb, which would be like for cyclera. So like, you know, rhino iguanas, things like that. Euromastics, bearded dragons. That bulb is three watts. It's tiny. 
and it projects UV. The end of zone one on the Ferguson zones ends at 40 inches away from the ball. Wow. Yep. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> that, that, means that, <laughs> that means that that bulb has an effective UV range of four feet, roughly. Damn. All right. Okay. Yeah, about three and a half feet. So it's, it's I mean, you're talking most most uh, fluorescent bulbs, you got to be within 12 inches. All and right. I, you know, better. I, I kind of <laughs> like that you, um, I, I don't know if this was purposely done this way. I don't know if it was, yeah, but you've kind of taken the, the, confusion out of it a bit with how you have it set up with like okay if you keep a desert species this is the bulb you want if you keep because there's so much confusion and we're snake guys at heart right we're python guys at heart and you know we're kicking and screaming about this whole uv thing and like you know so like maybe we can get into that a bit and like you know obviously you just said why it's important and all that stuff but like you always hear, I don't know what it is about the snake world of the reptile. They're like, no, no, we don't want you, to move forward. You <laughs> know what it is? <laughs> what it is, it, and this, and I hate it. And and this is this is what I've seen over the years, and I'm sure you guys will agree, no matter how much this sucks to say out loud. But in U.S. herpetoculture, our husbandry, like bar standard, is don't kill it. That's it. Like yeah, a care sheet, yeah. it, yeah. a care sheet is a one page on how not to kill this in the next two weeks. Right. That's it. Right. Not how to make, not it, how to make it happy. Not yeah. how to make it have a good life. Not how to keep it for right. twenty five years. <laughs> it's how to not kill it before you get home. Yeah. Like right. That's it, and that's where standards are. Unfortunately, even when it comes to snakes and monitors and stuff like that, people are like, "Well, they don't need it to live," and I'm like. Well, my kids don't need vegetables to live, but they're going to be pretty jacked up kids. If I just feed them like rice and candy bars, they can live like that. It's not good for them. Not good. Not long, but yeah. And like, yeah, exactly. Your standard shouldn't be, I can not kill that in a week. Like that shouldn't be your goals as a reptile keeper. Like if that's your goals, that's a problem, man. Like that's a big problem. It'll live till next week. Yeah. Exactly. Like we've got to get past that. And like you were talking about, you guys talked about with saltwater. That's my goal. That's my dream. My dream is that we start looking at reptiles the way those guys with the 1000 gallon acrylic tank with the Kessel lighting on it that are $3,000 a fixture because they can dial it into the nanometer wavelength that this one coral that lives on one rock in the ocean needs. And they're cool with that. And then yeah. this, they get that one coral, and just like you said, and then they're like, and then I got a damsel because it was purple and pretty and $8. Exactly, yeah, they're all and that. They're like, and then I got yeah. a fish. Yeah, and I'm like, that's cool because that setup costs more than my car. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then you get yeah. reptile keepers, and they're like, look at this $20,000 snake. Now I'm going to put it in a drawer on paper. Back in the drawer. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, We're what? so backwards. Like, it's so weird. Like, if I had a snake there, an animal that I paid more than $11 for, like, I, you know who should be the king of the hobby? It should be that guy that's like, I built this four by four by eight foot tall enclosure in a closet. It's got a real tree in it. It's a living tree. I dug a hole in my concrete and planted a tree right. and it's raining system and all this lighting. And it, you literally walk into a closet and you're in South America. And I did that because I caught my kid caught in a knoll in Florida. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. its new yeah. home. 
Yep. Like that guy. We have we have three anole lizards in there. We think exactly. we don't know. We just throw food <laughs> like, in there. That yeah. guy. That should be the guy who we're all like, oh my god, you're the new god of the hobby. Do we, exactly. Do Instead, we're like, like you have synchronous drawers yeah. in an entire like, line. <laughs> like, and I say in this, like the snakes. I love the snakes. And I love the ball python hobby and the morphs and even the carpets. All the morphs, all that stuff is cool. Sure. But if you strip yeah. away the skin, you're not doing anything different. You're, you're, it's no different than breeding normal to normal. So what, guess what? When you hatch that $80,000 ball python, it's the same work to hatch that $2 one that you don't care about. It just has a different paint job on it. That's it. So there's That's no, my, you know, to me, there's just no value there. I mean, it's cool mm-hmm. and I appreciate it, but like the value to her pediculture isn't there. You're, you're right. creating yeah. something neat and flashy that looks neat. But it's it, I can write you I literally for most of the species that are like that in the hobby you can write a formula on a piece of paper of how to do it. Here's your calendar, the dates you need to do, how you need to feed it, what you need to do, the temperatures. Good luck. <laughs> I'm gonna hand it to you. I can give this to my nine year old daughter, and she can go breed ball pythons or Bearded dragons or leopard geckos or whatever. And like at that point, okay, we know how to do that. You're doing it. It's great. What can we do better? Why is that the stopping point? Right. Yeah. We always have I to keep to pushing say, the rock uphill. Like just yep. keep keep moving it forward. Either breed a hard species or expand the knowledge on this. So you right. keep moving it forward. Yeah. I tell I tell one every of, breeder I know that's got a big collection, pick one thing. One even if you have a ten thousand ball pythons, pick one row of one rack or one set of cages to be something different. Something that not a lot of people are working with or that's yep. unique that you can put a little time at, you can enjoy. It'll give you a little bit of a break from the normal and you could do something substantial by being someone that that protects the conservation of that. Not of not wildlife conservation, but the hobby conservation of that mm-hmm. species existing into the future. And that is a real Good. add to her pediculture. That's a real value to what you do then. That's a good, that's a good, uh, I like that thinking that it's not necessarily wildlife conservation, but none of our shit is going back to the wild, all right? Like, yeah. I know some of my carpets downstairs uh, would be like, oh, nice. And then they would jag and then the hawk would take it <laughs> as it was exactly jagging. Enough. And it would be like, all right, well, well it gave it a shot. I, even the dart frogs and stuff, those are never going to go back out because no. we don't, we, one, as, 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 as hobbyists, we don't catalog anything. <laughs> Everything is inbred to the nth degree. You can't, I don't know anybody who can tell you the, like who can track the lineage of their animal back to the import, especially on like Australian stuff. Like there's, a, yeah, well, there's, there, there's very few. Welcome what? to the 1%. He's the, such the, an asshole. The 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Right. Like, and he didn't no, do it. Nick Mutton did it. It, you know? it, came, it came from Nick on a piece of paper. We get mm-hmm. it. No, no, no. Even then. Oh, no, no. I listen. Nobody likes IJs. They don't count. All right. That's you can track that lineage because they just came in wild caught. Like that's right. Why. And also, who's <laughs> saying that what they got in the in the farm is really oh, what they're saying? Yeah, no question no. mark. Like, over you, sir. But like, but like, look, like if you can tell me, like if you can track your Brazilian rainbow boa back to where it came from, like <laughs> you can't. Or get right. your ball python. Good luck. 
or crested geckos. And that's a funny thing to me too, is like you, the hobby is so oblivious to that in an ex- and to an extent too. You see people like in the crested geckos and the geckos, they're like, they want lineage. They want to know where that animal came from and who the parents were. So they're not related. And I'm like, guys, there was like 30 of those exported. Like four. <laughs> like, they're all related. It's like with like, bearded dragons. Just like, yeah. If they're not clutch yeah. mates, you're, you're, you're close enough. They're, 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 about as far, they're about as far unrelated as good you enough. can genetically good, good enough. Yeah. yeah. It's well, and that's that's the hilarious thing, too, is I love it when people are like, well, with the purity is all this other stuff, but they're dealing with species where the nomenclature has changed so many times that, and also yeah. with things that like Hunters back in the old like days, that, like right? exactly yeah. like with Condros, nobody gave a shit. They were trying to keep them alive and then they were trying to breed them. You came from this island, I don't give a damn. Get over here. Yeah. Like, and that was, and that's how that happened to the point where zoological stuff have had to deal with that like we were talking about with the giraffes we're like wait there are nine species now yeah like in that so of course we fall into those pitfalls all the time the the lewisai iguanas that's why there's lewisai hybrids in the hobby is because the lewisai used to be the same as the uh, cubans they were the same species and then they speciated them and as soon as they did that all the zoos went Oh, crap. We've been bringing those together. (laughs) (laughs) So then they were just, they just dumped them all because they were all hybrid mutts now. And that's how the hobby got them. And you don't, you don't get money for government SSPs if you, if (laughs) if it's, if it's a hybrid. It's, it's, it's got some Lewisai. (laughs) No, no. 100%. Exactly. So, yeah. So like that. that, I used to. That's why I say say, Go ahead, man. No, no, no. Go ahead, man. No, I was gonna say that's why, like, I love the idea, like, the Barkers through uh, um, the Invisible Ark and talking about you know mm-hmm. conservation through captive propagation. That one thing that that needs to be clarified: it's herpeticultural hobby conservation, <laughs> right? Through captive propagation, think- captive <laughs> propagation yeah. does nothing for in situ wildlife conservation. Period. <laughs> Unless you buy your products for, from VivTech, who donates five percent of their profit to in situ wildlife conservation. Oh, I thought you were going to go really far and be like, ours, make sure everything, is, our lights, make sure everything is pure. It dilutes the DNA. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, shit. oh, yeah, oh, no. I'm just, we, <laughs> oh, keep we're, going. We're going straight with it to the point where, like, we need, to, like, I don't, I don't understand that there's such a fight between, you know, zookeepers and biologists and, and hobbyists and veterinarians. And I'm like, it's really stupid because if you talk in those rooms, if you all get in a room together and you don't say who you are, you're all just reptile nerds. Yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody gets it's until nobody you get the it's until you get those borders up that everybody freaks out. And then that's where like one of the things we wanted to do with VivTech is I want to I want to show that the hobby can give back. Like we're the bad guys out of all of it. It's always the hobby that's the bad guys. Always. Yeah. yeah. But the hobby can be a massive driver for the advancement of all of those other pieces. We can work with veterinarians to create better husbandry products so that they don't have to work as hard to keep our animals alive. And then right, we can work right. with conservation efforts in situ wildlife conservation because. Let's be honest. If you love rep, it's kind of like the if you love pets, you have to love the not furry ones. Well, if you love reptiles, you shouldn't just love the ones you can keep in a box in your house. You should care about yeah, the ones right. everywhere. You know, so like there's that, and then through biologists and stuff like that, we can work with them. I have animals that I've captively bred that have gone out for studies for things that have you know added to the body of knowledge of those animals. I think mean, that's incredible. You know, like mm-hmm. there's so many avenues for that, and that's what we want to use VivTech to do too. So five percent of the profit off the top, the net profit, which is me and Erica's money, and what we're doing, our we're donating that to five uh, percent of it to US Arc and US Arc Florida for every single item that gets sold, no matter what. It's built into the pricing from the second we 
before it ever, before anybody even knows it's going to be a product and we're looking at it as an option, it's built into the pricing right away. Uh, and then the other 5% awesome. gets built yeah. into wildlife conservation. So when you go check yeah, out at sure. our site, which will be live tomorrow, you can actually, this part may not be live. Hopefully it will be. Um, but no, when it's you too late. Out, you already said it. Now keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this, this component, you'll be able to buy bulbs. But when you get to your cart, we're working on something where you'll be able to pick between 10 to 12 different conservation organizations to donate nice. your purchase piece to. So if you, it's your, for your iguana, you can donate to the International Iguana Foundation. If you're doing it for your Very dart cool. frogs, you can donate to the Amphibian Foundation. If you're doing it for chameleons, you can do the Herpetological Conservation International. You know, there's so many cool organizations that we're going to start using these products and the love of people have for reptiles and advancing husbandry to drive the advancements in those areas too and fund those guys so they can do better. I do like that. That's awesome. And I like the idea of expanding <clears throat> knowledge and working together because I think like I, I, I've brought my snake into veterinarians who I'm like, I just I, I know it needs meds and I know what it needs. And the vet's like, well, do you mist every day? No. Well, you should mist every day. It doesn't rain every day in Australia. Like, I, like I'm not going <laughs> to like I don't like, you know, that's something I know that I'm like, I, I know you're reading off a piece of paper because you're a cat and dog vet. And I would like for you to come with me and, you know, share some knowledge. And then the next right. time you're not trying to tell me to hose off my snake and that's really what's wrong <laughs> well, with it. Like, no. And a so. lot of times with veterinarians, and this is another thing people have to remember. So and this mm. is something that I had to have this hard realization too. So if you have, if it, if this hits you somewhere, like it hit me too. I always kind of was like, yeah, I know more than the vets about my husbandry and everything in my animal. I just need them <laughs> to give me meds. Right. The, the thing is though. So like vets get a lot of crap from her, from reptile keepers in the hobby. Right. I, and then I realized, I'm like, you know what? I actually, to an extent, I only give about 10% of a crap on whether my my vet knows what kind of snake that is or where it comes from because right. they don't really need to know that to understand the, the biology and anatomy and um, histopathology and things like that of those animals. They don't have to know whether it's a jungle carpet or a coronata to understand how a certain virus is going to affect that python. They know the virus or they know the bacteria and they know how it's going to affect it. They know the meds. They know snakes. They don't need to know the species because most snakes are biologically the, and anatomically very similar and they react similarly. So to go in and be like, oh, you you, you thought this was a rose hair tarantula and it's really a Chaco Goldeny. So you're an idiot. Oh, no, now you're splitting hairs. Like, who cares? <laughs> Either way, we act like that. We're the idiot because the, 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 the veterinary knowledge needed to help your animal is exactly the same for those two species. Right. And we're getting into the weeds with the details of what they know, but that's not what they need to know. And I don't want my vet to fill their brain with the husbandry of bearded dragons. I want them to know how to deal with adenovirus or yellow fungus and how to, you know, how to help people yeah. get away from that. Now, husbandry is important, but to be to the extent of they can they can only do as much as we can do. You know, handing somebody a care sheet and telling them the best you can, they're going to do maybe part of it. And that's right, all they can right. do. But at least they have the knowledge on the veterinary side. And that's where we need to start opening our eyes to. That's what we're going to them for. We still need that. Like you can say, you know, husbandry up and down. But that idea, the, the, the old school idea of like it's got an infection, hit it with Batril, you know, Good got job. a wild caught, dump, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, what do you give panicure. a wild caught? Yeah. Dump, dump a gallon of panicure down its throat and it'll be fine. You'll figure it out. Like that's how it was in like the 70s and 80s. There's a lot of research on why that is a horrifically bad thing to do. Like, yeah. Right. So that you need yeah. those vets and you need that knowledge and you need that research to continue to go forward. And we need to support those guys. 
to, so that they can keep learning. So we need to support our veterinarians and then go in with an open mind of if you can give them some of that, that, that husbandry information to make their job easier when it comes to di- like helping someone with the husbandry. So when the, somebody comes in with a problem, they're going to help them solve the problem. It, and then it's even better if we can help them pinpoint the piece of husbandry that may have caused that problem. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so and then, gonna, <clears throat> Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's what my wife was saying. Then we can also be a resource to them and they can be a resource to us. I mean, we've had some, inc- we have incredible friends that are veterinarians that, yeah. I mean, we'll just, I've just sent out, I've just messaged them and been like, Hey, I want to inject dye into my monitor's hemipenal cavity to see if it's can a male or a female. <laughs> like, can we do that? And they're like, you're crazy, but I'm down. Like, <laughs> like, so we're like, we're going to learn together. And then I'm going to learn a cool way to possibly sex incredibly difficult, difficult varanids. And then they're going to find that out and pass it on to other veterinarians. It's going to go on at ARAV. They're going to share that stuff. And that's an opportunity where me as a keeper, just possibly made it easier for everybody else in the world as a keeper to figure out the sex of their animal through the veterinary community. That's a huge move forward for all of us. And like that doesn't happen if you don't have those discussions. Yeah. Yeah. If you continue to separate, you know, ah, this mm-hmm. is yeah, yeah, I know more than you. I don't, I don't need to, I just give yeah. me the, give me the panicure and give me the, the you know, whatever. No, it, and I'm dude, is the worst thing ever. It rocks their flesh out, man. Yeah, yeah, no. And then Panicure, and, they actually did some research that showed that if you overdose Panicure to t- too often, it actually starts to degrade their bones. Jeez, wow. well, yeah, but like, that and that that was always the way. You're you 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 burned the freaking snake by giving it tons of Batril, but yep. it lived. I'm like, did it? <laughs> like yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> like the old days where you took a you took a can of like of of Rid and you sprayed inside a, a oh sack my God. and you put yeah. twenty <laughs> flying geckos in there and shook it. And then whatever yeah. ones did, all the mites fell off, and whatever ones lived, that's the ones that got to get sold. Like I'm hoping we're past <laughs> yeah. those days, you know? Like I, we we can yes. be, and that's the most frustrating part exactly. is we can be over this, but we choose to be like it's easier this way just to spray the gecko in the face. Yeah, like it. So and it's like yeah, that might be the easiest, but like is that what's best? The best. And, and if and if we took that moment to say like, hey, maybe we could do better. Maybe we wouldn't have a big target on our back, and maybe Phil wouldn't be going 100 miles an hour. And the guy's got to be doing meth to stay awake. I don't know how he does what he does. He's some kind of other world, and I love him to death for everything he does. But like the stuff, the stupid crap, and the not changing, and the waiting around, and the getting stuck in our ways, and the not advancing. Like even the talks where you talk about UV. The stuff that I'm telling people, I'm pulling off of papers from the 1940s and 50s. Like. Let that so sink in for news. A it's fresh yeah. stuff. Yeah, and yeah. this is stuff they're like that can't be true. And I'm like, well, do you want 78 different studies done by people in every country of the world to prove it to you? And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, oh, because those actually okay, exist. You You're just lazy. So, yeah. like reptiles, the reptiles are notorious. I'm going to circle this back to UV for a second and get your thoughts on this. But reptiles are in the wild are pretty well known to be able to like survive some like horrendous you know, things that nature is going to throw at it. You know, it seems that when we put them in a box, they don't seem to be as resilient. And is it, does UV tie into that? Is that, you know, there's like so many things we're missing and, and this is one of those important things that people have sort of 
overlooked for so long. You know what my favorite thing is, right? So you get a guy. Let's let me use monitors because this is a mon- monitor. Guys are just as bad as snake guys with this. Oh yeah. Would, right. you know, so you get a guy who's like, I got this beautiful green tree monitor. He builds this incredible planted live bioactive. Holy crap! Enclosure. And then I'm like, that's awesome. What, do you, what kind of UV do you have on? You know, they don't need UV. Okay, well, that's technically true. You can supplement whole prey, blah, blah, blah. You don't need it, but you built this crazy enclosure to mimic their natural environment? He goes, yeah. Where in the world is there a natural environment that doesn't include the sun? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm just, just throwing that out there. Like, and that's more really than important. hotness comes from the sun. There's a whole yeah. bunch of other wavelengths that do crazy crap, like not just heat. So, and, if you, and then all of a sudden you get people that are like, what? Uh, uh, huh? Yeah, you're right. And I'm like, yeah. And these are, di- these, are know, yeah. these are totally nocturnal animals that don't come out until two in the morning. And then they go back to bed at three and they're like, no, they're out during the day. And I'm like, oh, weird. It's weird. So sunlight would touch them. So it's possible that over a million years oh, they've evolved to use that sunlight. Yeah. That's That right. sounds strange to you. Like, it's just, like, it's just, you slowly feed them little cookies and they eventually get there. And then when you get there, you're like, yeah, this was like trying to get my kids potty trained. Like it was really painful, Like, but it's something so simple. And, and, and that's what, what, what kills me. But yeah, UV is so imperative to so many things. UVB uh, is, is directly affects the, the strength of their immune system. And then because of the serotonin development with UVA, it also affects their stress and anxiety, how they view their, how they're viewing their world and how they see their world through UVA also affects it. Like if everything you saw was colorblind or was black and white, you'd be a little nervous. You like, if you found a dart frog in the wild, you probably wouldn't know if you wouldn't know if you could eat it or not. Because you'd yeah. be colorblind. You know what I mean? So, like, right. that makes a big difference to how they interact with their – even how they see their food. So that was something I brought up when I was at Zilla. Um, our our sister company, KT, they do uh, parrot food. And parrots have dual cones in their eyes as well, so they can see the UVA spectrum. And they were putting out some new food and colored variants that they wanted to try out and asking people what they liked, what colors looked the best. And I asked them, I said, well, it's cool that we're telling you what we see, but, like, have you actually – have you guys actually looked at these – these pellets under a UVA spectrum light next to actual pieces of fruit that they would eat or nuts and seeing what the colors look like compared to the actual fruit. Cause you may cut, co- you may get the color, right? But the UVA spectrum, you could be feeding them what looks like a plate of rabbit pellets with neon red things in it. Like, and yeah, it could be a whole right. bunch of colors that looks gorgeous to us, but it looks like crap to them. You know, so like if we're not doing that, we're not keep putting that into consideration. So and that's a big part of how they live. So it also reduces their stress. So it's a big piece of keeping their stress down and then including and then building their immune system. So it's it's that's a huge portion of, of the struggles with animals in captivity and keeping them in a box and not giving them that light. Even when you think they don't need it, there's so many people. Again, they don't need UVB to survive. That's 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 the literal statement. That isn't they don't need UVB. It's that they don't need it to live. It's they. But but if you want them to do more than just exist, then you should have it. If your goal as a snake keeper is to have an animal that's just not dead, that's your goal is to just not have a dead snake. Then fine, don't use UVB. But if you want brighter colors, better scalation, better sheds, better eating, better breeding, you know, more active, less stressed, more, more easy to deal with injuries, things like that, all the positives of a healthy animal, then you need UV, period. Right. That's just period. And especially snakes like, you want to talk snakes, diamond pythons. Diamond pythons have an incredibly high UV need. And it's actually, 
I know people in Australia that have had them. If you keep some inside, I'll try and get some pictures of this. Um, uh, who was I talking with three, uh, the other day? I said, so we were talking to people in Australia because the time zones are like mm-hmm. perfect where we're asleep yeah. at the wrong times. So we, yeah. I, was, uh, Scott, I was talking to Scott Iper. He's like, yeah, I'm sitting in my work parking lot at six o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, that's about the only time I got to talk to you. So, yeah. you know, but like. But he's like, I can't, I, he kept diamond pythons inside forever, just like everybody does. And he realized, you start to see, and some of the carpet guys may see this, you start to see some, like, kind of waviness on their scales, of the scales of the carpets. If you take those carpets outside or you put them under UV, that the, the uh, keratin in their scales starts to develop uh, more readily and is better because they have better D3 synthesis. So they synthesize more of their calcium, and it'll actually smooth their scales back out. They'll have better sheds, and you can physically see that change happen. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, so for a long time, I used radiant heat panels with my diamond pythons because that's what I was told that you do, right? And I'm like, well, this just doesn't make sense to me because here you have an animal that specifically is in a cold environment, and what they do is they come out and they bask. They are dark and black because they soak up as much sun as they, they could. So why wouldn't they also need the UV part of it is sort of what's sort of like led me down this road to – look at that you know like it, yeah. it, you sort of like push yourself outside of the box and say okay well you know if they're using the sun all the time to your point what you said earlier like you make this beautiful enclosure and it's like uh don't they use the sun <laughs> exactly yeah. you know and like and, and so. you start to think about it too I, I love when people are like yeah but your carpet python's nocturnal dude they don't need it like one but there's still that, sunlight a that's the N word, nocturnal in my house. That's that is a. I mean, don't say it because there is there are this many species of reptile that are nocturnal. That many, none, zero, not a thing. How can an animal who needs a heat gradient in order to digest his food live at night where there's no heat gradient ever? It can't. On top of it, it needs a lot of other different things. So animals, reptiles, even like say rattlesnakes, right? That's a lot more. Or let's talk about any kind of. There's a lot of snakes. And, uh, you know, there are geckos that are a lot more, they're out and active a lot more at night because their food is more active at night or because it's mm-hmm. 111 degrees during the day and yes. they, don't, they die. <laughs> they don't want so to be just, outside. Yeah. Yeah. That's their I just experienced that. <laughs> yeah. Right. They just go outside and burn alive into a crispy piece of jerky or hang out till nighttime. Like you'll just become kind of more nighttime anyway. But at the same time, they're out during the dusk and dawn, and they're, they have thinner skin that doesn't have crystalline structures in it that reflect the UV that other animals that are more equi- like well, equator animals or equatorial animals do. So bearded dragons, iguanas, things like that actually have a, a crystalline structure in their skin that allows them to reflect a lot of that light back out because they are in places where it's so intense. If they didn't do that, they would get sunburned in minutes. You know, it'd be too hard for them to actually warm up. They would get burned up before they warmed up. Um, Animals like a lot of the snake species that, you know, people call nocturnal or gecko species, they have thinner skin that doesn't have that that structure. So they're able to absorb UV incredibly quickly, and they only need about 15 minutes of sunlight a day. And they get that, you know, maybe 30 minutes, a little longer when it's dusk or dawn, where it's really angled light and it's not as intense. That's when they get it. They even showed like there was a study done in Texas about Texas banded geckos. They actually will sit at the edge of their burrow with just their head in the sunlight because that is just that absorbing that UVB and UVA on the skin of their head for a short period of time is all they need every day. So all they need to do is that. And then if these animals digest or let's say a snake catches a big meal at night, eats this giant bird 
Now it has to find somewhere warm during the day to get the gradient it needs in order to get the energy it needs to digest that food. So during that time, even if it's in the shade, it's getting refracted and, and reflected UV. It's still getting reflect, reflected light. It's still absorbing it. And it's not absorbed. It, it may not be as intense, but it doesn't need it to be as intense because it can absorb it a lot easier over shorter periods of time. So those animals still see it. We just keep thinking like, well, that animal's outside at night. That means it's nocturnal. And if it's nocturnal, it never sees the sun. And if it never sees the sun, then UV is stupid. And I'm like, well, that's one way to look at it. I mean, you could, you, you could, you could, you know, take a hundred other different paths to get to the wrong answer, but I guess that's the shortest one to be wrong. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's uh, it's weird. Right. So I have, this is just a little tidbit, right? When we were out herping in Texas uh, a, a couple weeks ago, right. You know, one thing that uh, it was, I think it was like four o'clock, maybe it was three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning or whatever. And Rob and Phil were outside drinking a beer and they called a garter snake, which typically is what you would see during the day, right? And, yep. you know, why would you see it at that time? Probably because of the temperature, right? You know, but you would expect to see it during the daytime, like here where we're from, right? In, yeah. in Pennsylvania, you know, you find a garter snake, it's going to be <clears throat> either right, you know, when the sun is starting to set because it cools down a bit or whatever. But uh, there, it was just so hot. I mean, it's 115 degrees during the day. They're yep. not coming out. They're just they're they're not they're not doing it. So it's like, our our that made me just take a step back and sort of think like, do I really understand what the, you know you know what I mean? Like, uh, wow, yeah. I, I thought I knew about snakes, but I guess I really don't. You know, I, we, I don't we know. try and we try as a hobby to make everything too simple. Like I like the idea of you know keep it simple, stupid, whatever. But at the, and and then on top of it to 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 promote that reptiles are an easy lower maintenance pet but i think in a way we've promoted that too much mm, where we've right. simplified them too much where now we're missing major components of their husbandry because we just want to make it sterile and easy and right. now you're taking an animal that needs more than that and like if that's what you want get a betta and put it in a cup on your desk and you can dump the water out of the cup and fill it back up and that thing can breathe there and you don't put a plant in it if you want. It's simple and it's easy. But that's not what reptiles are. They're they're simple in the fact that they're not a great Dane and I don't yeah. have to like – it doesn't try and sleep with me at night and crap in the house. I don't have to take it for walks and like that stuff is gone. It lives in its enclosure but there's more to it than just having a lizard in a box. So we've got to get that mentality to change too. They're easy to maintenance – once you have them, they're easy to keep once you have the knowledge and the foundation set. But we need to build right. up that there's more research into that foundation and make it easier for people to access that stuff. Well, I think one of the most frustrating ones of all is the bearded dragon, right? I think right. the bearded dragon gets lumped into this like, oh, it's just super easy to it's take care of. And nobody, <laughs> nobody is, takes care of it. That is the worst. Nobody, but it, it's the worst most beginners beginner don't take care of it right, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is, that is the number one animal we get into the rescue at our house. Like we, Erica is a founder of Friends of Scales Reptile Rescue, so we have that in the house. And um, that is the number one animal we get in with deformities. That and, yep. and box turtles, actually. So those two yep. are the worst cared for pets that we get in. Um, and I think a big – and the thing that sucks about that is they're ama- – Bearded dragons got made the easy pet because they're handleable. They're easy to deal with. And they produce yeah. incredible amounts of babies every year. Like they yeah, can lay three right. clutches of up to 40 eggs. So like 
that's an impressive amount of animals. So they're able to be mass produced very easily. That's actually has more to do with it than any of the other pieces. They're easy to get cheap and a lot of. So in the breeding captivity, so that's became the more popular beginner pet. The problem with it is they're great animals. Their setup needs to be done right. You've got to have the right UV. You have to understand how they eat and drink and, and, and how they how to feed them. And everybody just makes super fat bearded dragons that eat super worms or morbidly oh, yeah. obese. Uh-huh. They all have gout. They don't have the right lighting. They're all in horrible shape. Missing because toes. of super yeah, because yeah. of super simple things. And because we're just the hobby is just like, no, you just put it in a box and put a giant heat light on it, and you're good. But don't put them on sand, because if they eat it, they'll die. So put them on tile. Because that's <laughs> way better. Right. Like that's just we just continue to simplify it. Oh, they could die if they got a piece of sand in their mouth. Put them on tile. Oh, they could do yeah. you know, basically we've we've taken it from let's build this really amazing zoological enclosure to let's put them in a concrete box and treat them like criminals. Like yeah. criminals get yeah. more outside exercise than your bearded dragon does. That yeah. is screwed up. Like that's think- not okay. I think even just the size of the enclosure, right? I mean, like, I mean, most people, I, I, at least, I don't know, when, when I was getting back into the hobby the in the 2000s, gallon. you know, it was like yeah. you could put it in a 20-gallon, and it's like, no. But yeah, you can not, for right? two weeks after it hatches. Yeah. Until it's got, until it's yeah, eating its 7,000th right? cricket in the two weeks that it's been alive. Then by then, it'll be able to go in a 20 long, you know? Yeah, no, and right. that's. I'd like to see, like I said, I'd like to see more people going back to how how big and how awesome could I do it? How big could I go? How naturalistic could I go? How in-depth into this animal's like natural behaviors and husbandry could I go to create its habitat? That should be the goal. It should be how crazy can I get with the amount of space I have? And if the space you have is a 10-gallon tank, then you should go as crazy as you can with guppies. Right. Or a uh, leopard gecko, one a, little one, a. Like, singular. Well, yeah, I've been banging this drum since since we started this podcast. That Time I think that, memoriam. like, yeah. yeah. So I think like, uh, it, and I was specifically gearing it towards like Morelia keepers and breeders. Right, you have some of the most beautiful pythons in this complex, right? And back then you had scrubs and bolins and all that was kind of lumped in, but. Like you have some of the most, you know, interesting and, and, and the fact that they would come out and they would be, they, they didn't hide, you know, they didn't, they, they would go out and bask and they would perch and all this stuff, you know, chondro, the typical perching and all that kind of stuff that we missed the mark in selling a pet. Yeah. We, we missed the, we miss it. We miss it. We miss it. We're just trying to sell to another person who is going to breed. And then now we're both breeding and, you know, now all of a sudden, now the market becomes flooded. Nobody, you know, the, everybody yep. stops caring about that species or it becomes, you know, the bearded dragon, leopard gecko, crested yep. gecko thing where it's like, oh, if I see another one of these. It, but, you know, like, I, I, you know, I, I just had this whole awakening over the past couple of years where, you know, when, when I when I went to Australia and you see this little skink on a rock and you're watching it do its thing and it's in the in the wild and. You know, if I would have seen that at a at a reptile show, I would have just been like, uh, yeah, get a deli coat. You know, you know, you know? yeah. But here, when you're watching it in the wild, you're like, oh my god, this thing is the coolest thing ever. Like, look, this yep. one, this is his rock, and that's her rock, and you know, they're jumping back and forth and all this stuff. Yep. But um, I don't know. I I think that we we sell this idea, and I think it's starting to change. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's like 
But when I was getting back into the hobby, the whole thing was it's like selling this idea to breed, right? Yeah. So that you could do this for a living and you could spend all day with your reptiles. And like, that sounds excellent, right? But like, if you're not like looking at them, or, you know, or getting to see what they do, which to me is like the coolest part of the whole thing, you know, yeah. it's like, you get to observe them and, and like these little things that they do. And it's like, wow, I didn't know they did that. It takes me back to when I was a kid. And the first time you saw the snake shed or the first time you yep. saw the snake eat or, or, or whatever it would be, it kind of gives you that feeling again. I don't know what you're doing. I get that feeling now. I've like, I slow-mo yeah. <laughs> record my snakes eating just because I think it's cool to watch. Like, like <laughs> I'll just right. post it to Facebook because I'm like, seriously, just take a minute to look at the mechanics of this. It's awesome. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, I, I totally agree that there's definitely a change, but I think that that's, that's kind of been the thing. Like, I, there, there, there's been a switch. So... We, we got, you know, Barcheck and BHB was really good at like putting it out there that everybody could see these big breeding facilities and that this, this existed in the ball pythons and there was money. And, and what we did is we started selling investments, not pets. Yeah. And that, and with the problem with it was because we were, how do you say, well, Hey, this spider ball python is $10,000, but this other one that it's the exact same thing. It acts the same. It looks the same. It does exactly the same thing, but it has doesn't have the little stripes that this one has does. a spot on its nose yeah so like that this one worth it this one's this one's eight grand but this normal one's twelve dollars they're the same <laughs> thing they're gonna act the same they eat the same the care is the same it's gonna be the same kind of pet but this one's stripy and yeah, i will and i will give you a loan for this this stripy one the, that's why you have to get into the scaleless ones because that's when you start getting into the real ones that are really different yeah that well like broken <laughs> But like, so oh, you hurt my heart, <laughs> but that's the thing. Like we, we did it all as, as investments and I wish we would have taken a look. We honestly, the hobby in general needs to take a look at the bird hobby and yep. how one, how exotic birds were the target for a lot of animal rights and things, what they had to do to stick around. Like exotic birds don't come into the country anymore. Like all the things that they had to do and the certifications that they created and all that stuff. Like there's some stuff we can learn from that period. But then also they get you to buy a $15,000 macaw that's going to outlive you. And if you don't love it every day, it's going to eat a hole through your house. Like yeah, it's going to bite the gonna, hell out of you. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to, it can snap your finger off and it'll scream in your eyes until they bleed. Like, it, these this can be either a great pet or the worst decision you ever made for the rest of your life and you have to take out a loan to do it and then in a year you're gonna hate it like but they sell that to you without ever telling you about breeding because nobody you never really sells you a parent and tells you how to breed it it's about how smart they right. are and how good a companion animal they can be right. how intelligent mm -hmm. and beautiful and all this that they there's a reason you want that animal in your life but we went the other way and went yeah but you can make a lot of money like and right that just doesn't appeal to everybody. And that's why up until actually through COVID, I thought we were going to see with the rescue, huge collection dumps. I thought we were going to get hammered and we yeah. didn't actually get any. Um, and a lot of what I'm seeing is, like I said, back then you had a lot of people like with Barcheck and showing these big and nerds showing their facilities. Everybody wanted to be the next big breeder. So you saw all these, everybody getting drawers and having as many snakes as they can. And it was the, who had the, had the most snakes was the winner. It didn't matter what you did or why. And then, right. and then after time, we all kind of got to the point where we're like, all right, this is an enormous amount of work. It's not really a hobby anymore. And it's not as fun because it's stressful when you're not feeding them and you're worried about it. And then something dies and then you're worried about that. And you got a, a mm -hmm. snake that doesn't eat. And it's just always stress. And you have this big collection and reptiles are notorious for just dying because it's funny to screw with you. 
And yeah. like no yeah. reason whatsoever other than like, hey, you're having a bad day. I'll add on to it. I'll die for no reason. And like yeah, that's man. just how they go. So like it's just it's stressful. And then I think after a while people got and this is what happened to me. I just kind of got sick of like looking at a wall full of drawers. Yeah. Like this is the only time I interacted with my animals or got to appreciate them is when I went through, picked out their poop, fed them and gave them water, shut the drawer and moved on. Cause I didn't have yeah. time to do much other than that. Or I took them out for educational shows, but that was only certain animals. So it just kind of got, kind of got sick of it. And I, I started going back to all the stuff around me. Now the caging and big PVC caging, big lots of lighting and natural decor and stuff and planted tanks and really trying to give these guys more. And now they're out all the time and I get to see them and they're more active. And it's just like, I can sit in the middle of this back room and just look around and just enjoy it. And it's, yeah. Totally different. And the, one, I could say one of the biggest things that I did that I, I challenge everybody to do, um, and this changed how I keep too, is I got to a point where it wasn't fun anymore. It was hot. It was work. It was stressful. I had to be down. I had a lot of geckos at the time. I had twins that were just born. I had four kids under five years old. Like, it was a lot of work. Oh, so wow. I was like, yeah, and, I just, and, and apparently like, a head injury. Like, that is, dear God. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just, at that point, I was just like, I just don't have time to keep doing this. And it was stressful. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what? I don't know what to get rid of. I love all of these animals. I love what I have and I appreciate what I do. And it was just hard to think about letting any of it go. So I was sitting there one day and I was like, you know what? If everything I had was worth nothing, there was no value to any of them. Every baby I hatched, I just gave away to somebody that would like it. What would I keep just because I wanted it in my life and I wanted to interact with it and I appreciated it. Mm-hmm. And then that's, that was it. After that, that was the discussion. And then it made it immediately made everything really clear. Like, even there were animals, you had to get to a point where I'm like, ah, I really want to keep this. I produce a lot of them. They sell well, so they allow me to fund other things. And then I'm like, nah, wrong mentality. It's not something that I appreciate. It's not something that really drives me and drives my heart of what I love to do. Eventually, it's going to turn into work and not be fun because that's not an animal that inspires me or gets me excited or that I nerd out over. So eventually, it just becomes work. So I got rid of all of those species, really started focusing on the ones that get me excited and now I love every single thing I have and every single th- cage I open. Well, one, something tries to bite me in the face, but that's the animals I love is every single <laughs> thing that wants. If they want to cuddle, they're boring. If they want to rip my eyeballs out and like, you know, musk in them, that's my favorite animal. Like course, that's, yeah. that's, that's what I want to play now with. Now you're the, speaking you know, my language. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like, uh, I kind of, I, 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 Owen can tell you, right? I, for years, I, I thought I had to have like, you know, oh, I had to have a backup male for every male that I had. And, you had two you know, backup like, males for every male. Why, yeah. why, why do you have that? And I would just be like, I, I don't know. I, I, my, those I are my favorite. I, it's the... Um, I just, uh, I thought I had to have it. And like, as yeah. I'm going through, I started to, I, you know, I'm starting to produce carpets and whatnot. And the Jag thing just drove me nuts, man. I'm just like, why am I doing this? Like, this is just... I just, I, I'm not against it, it. Look, you do whatever you want to do. I'm not here to sit up. But for me, it just, I couldn't do it anymore. And it's just like, you know what? I'm getting rid of every single Jag I had. Like, they all got to go. You know what I mean? I just, when I open or look in the cage or whatever the case would be, I, I don't want to see the snake flip over. Like, yep. I don't know. You know, I just, Wrong that was head. my, yeah. right. Yeah, no, and I like I totally agree. Like, and I I appreciate all those morphs that have those little ticks and things like that. And yeah, and I think to power to you, like John, the, the like John Battaglia lives in Madison, so he I started the Madison Herb Society. He was one of my first speakers and known him for a long, long time. Yeah. And 
Great you guy. You can't look mm-hmm. at Gamma and not just be like, Jesus Christ, can I just touch it, please? Yeah, it I love my eyes. <laughs> oh my yeah. God, like all of it. All of those lines. And then, and then of course, yeah. he stops breeding them like before I had enough money to buy one from him. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but like, just as like a pet, because I'm like, I just want something that I look at and it hurts my eyes because it's just that bright. Good. But like, just, oh my God. But at the same time, like, if people love it, do it. Mm-hmm. The reality here, too, is just like we said earlier, they're pets. Like, I don't, I don't care who you are and what you're breeding. I, 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 sorry, this, that, it's like that hard pill to swallow meme. We're all pet manufacturers. That's what yeah. we do. None of yes. those animals are anything other than a pet. And that's kind of where it comes to me where I'm like, Jag, Spider, Scaleless. You know, Scaleless doesn't have as the neuro things, but like any of those things, it's never going to see the wild. And if it doesn't affect its, its, its quality of life, then I don't care. With the, with the neuro stuff, it's hard because there's such a range where you can have one yeah. that had, barely has anything. And then you have one that, like, if you look at it, it turns itself into a knot and flops over. Yeah. Like, yeah. So that makes it difficult. But I think if if people are ethically trying their best to do the best they can to avoid that, and then if those animals come up, they just are given to better homes. Or like, hey, if somebody that you – know, like, we have yeah. people with the rescue that just want to give a pet special needs a good home. And those people, yeah. we wait for something like that. Like, hey, it sure. eats well, it does well, but he's a little wonky. And he just needs right. somebody who's going to take the time to, like, make sure he's eating well and make sure he's drinking because he's a little bit special. Like, right. And he's just going right. to always be a little bit special. So, like, there's yeah, definitely it, that place. But I think what, if it was, like, if half of them were coming out like that, it becomes an issue to me. But otherwise, I mean, look, they're all pets. As long as somebody's willing to take care of it, then cool. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you you think about, like, it, you know what we with just the hip the hypocrisy sometimes with reptile keepers sometimes just like you know we're arguing about whether or not you should keep this you know neurological you know uh, snake or whatever that has this problem meanwhile you got a pet bulldog and it's just like I, yep. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Or, or we're, we're arguing about whether you should breed the animal with neurological issues but then on the other side we're like yeah but it doesn't need uv like we're ethically not going to breed that animal, but we're also ethically not going to give it light because it doesn't need it. Yeah. Like, like, dude, if you're going to push the hobby to be better, it's like, you can't be like, Oh no, I'm going to do way better about that. But all the rest of it's stupid. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. It's all dumb. Like, yeah. It's crazy. I do have, I do have a question, right? This is just the, uh, this is just for me personally, but like, so you have you, – I noticed you're, the bulbs that you are, are doing are screw-on, like yep. like a light bulb, as opposed to the tube. Is there a difference? Is there – um, yeah, why did so you choose to do that? I actually – unpopular opinion because I don't like the things we do in the hobby that have no scientific reason other than people are lazy, um, right. which is actually more than you'd think. And tube lights are one of them. Tube lights were created to create UVB across an animal's entire enclosure, which is great because they always have UV. But if you put them in a tank that is just tile with one little half round of log to hide under, then they have no UV gradient and no way to get away from it. And it is incredibly stressful for them. And then on top of it, that UV is actually a much lower output than they would usually have or see in the wild because they can't give you the output that they would see because that animal in the wild can get into a hole. It can go into shade. It can go next to a rock. It has huge gradients of UV and lighting all around it. But in a cage, you may not give it that gradient. And if we give you a light high enough to mimic what it would see, you're going to turn it into a 
blistered piece of jerky because you don't understand its actual husbandry and how to set up an enclosure to have those gradients. That's right. really what tubes are for. We use, I use tube lights if we're, if you're doing across a bank of enclosures and you're able mm-hmm. to keep it like all the way to the back where you can get a better gradient, it's not dead center in the middle. Oh, I gotcha. Um, right. Like that's one way where I think it's not awful, but even then I'm still, there's better options. For me, it's spots. It's always spotlights, whether it's coils or whether it's these spotlights. The reason I do spots is because in the wild, and like let's say Bearded Dragon, for example, is going to get out on top of a rock, and it's going to get just plastered with the most intense, gnarly sunlight anywhere on the planet, and it's going to just get hit as hard as it can. Then when it's done, it's going to move away. With tubes, it doesn't give them the option to move away, and they don't really get hit with that great of UV either, but they're just kind of always getting it. When you do a spotlight, I can create a spot that is really intense UV where they can go up, they can get the UV that they want, and then they can the gradient for that bulb is vertically and horizontally. With With a tube, it's vertically but not horizontally because you're at the same distance the whole tank. I mean, there's a little bit of difference front to back, but it's not enough to make that big of a change. But with a spotlight, I can create a complete UV gradient in all directions. And that, for me, is what becomes more important. On top of it, reptiles see UV lighting. So you And there's some studies from a couple of years ago. A lot of this stuff is in the last five years that shows that reptiles will actually independently regulate their, U, their UV from heat. So, they, so like mercury vapors and metal halides actually become a problem because if an animal wants to get more UV lighting, but it doesn't need to heat up anymore because it's reached its optimum body temperature, it doesn't have an right. option then. In the wild, it'll go in the shade it's still getting refracted UV from all over the place. It's still absorbing UV, but it's not heating up and it's able to relax. With those type of with those type of lights, you can't do that. So what I like to do is I combine a spotlight with a heat light because when they're basking, they also should have their UV. And then I put another spotlight on the other side of the cage, on the cold side, aimed at some other perch. And you'll see that snakes and lizards both will independently go and actually bask under that light they'll bask under a light that has zero heat on the cold side. Um, and there was another study recently that showed that some, some snakes actually look for their basking spot based on UVA. Like I think I said that before, based on UVA, not on their heat sensors, not in the heat pits, which is crazy to me. You literally have a thermal camera on your face, but you use the UVA. But that's also <laughs> right. why when some of those yeah. studies on d- big pythons were done, they showed that if you take a Burmese python in, in like up high B in the middle of winter and I open the back door to my house, it'll climb out on the snow because it's seeing the reflect the refraction of the light on the snow. That looks like the most incredible UV basking spot on the planet. It's right. also 10 degrees below zero and it doesn't pay attention to that. Doesn't right. care. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that's I was going to ask that. That's, ways, that's, you know? That's interesting that you say. I was going to ask, like, how would you set that up to where? So you're going, you would have a UV and a heat source, and then just a separate UV that's just the uh, yep for them to. Uh, that's okay. And then for, right. well, for a lot of lizards, it. especially a lot of lizards, especially. Um, and I, <laughs> I can show you guys, but I can't show the rest of everybody on the video over there. But um, but a lot of lizards, like, so look at your bearded dragon, your iguana monitors. Almost all of them have a spot right in the middle of their head. They have this little clear scale. So that under, in, under that, that scale's clear, and the top of their skull is an actual little drilled hole. It's a hole in the top of their skull, and on the top of their brain is an eyeball that doesn't have a lens. So it's an actual, like, has a cornea. It's an eyeball. It's their parietal eye. And what they use that for is that subconsciously helps them regulate their UV. Well, it was always thought that that was to help, like, 
see uh, like aerial predators. Like if a hawk went over the top of them, they'd see the shadow sure. and run. The mm-hmm, problem right. with that is there's very few chances where you're going to see the hawk's shadow before its talons are in your brain. So right. that really doesn't help, and that actually doesn't do anything. It's actually used for them to regulate their UVA and UVB intake. Um, so that they that, that's where they found that those animals can actually regulate it independent of heat. Um, and that study that was done was actually on, um, I want to say it was on panther chameleons. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Jeez. That's awesome. Um. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, mean, I was just curious about uh, that. Uh, that uh, oh man, I got so many thoughts now in my head oh, about it's snakes do it too, setups. though. <laughs> like, so, like Ashley, Ashley Desan up in Canada, she, uh, she's one of the owners of Northern Lights Imports. She brings in crazy animals from Europe all over the place, and me and her are. She's another UV nerd, so she's my little like. She's my I, when I have a UV nerd like moment, I, I message her and I'm like, oh my god, you ever think about this? And then we just nerd out for a while on UV light. So I sent her up some of my bulbs, and she keeps ridiculously weird colubrids. She's also making, like, her her side gig for her animals is making frog and lizard sausages because of the crazy weird crap she keeps that only mm-hmm. eats oh, that wow. stuff. <laughs> nice. But it's also all these colubrids that are very diurnal, that are very UV-needing. So she took some of these bulbs and put them in, and then I gave her a, um, a wireless camera as well. And we're watching the snakes throughout the day on the cold side – move different parts of their body through that uv spot and it's this is it's very you can watch it it's not unintentional they very intentionally how they move through it dragged all their body through it throughout like an hour they sit there and they move and they bring different parts of their body through that spotlight or they coil up underneath it completely and it's on the cold side it's not near a warm spot and it's 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 on it's one of the ones she has there's a ton of branches and they are sitting directly in the light. So that's not, it's not that just a convenience thing. It's not that that's the only spot to sit. They are basking under that light and you can watch them do it. It's, it's really cool to see how they move their body through it if they're a very big snake in order to make sure mm-hmm. that they get full coverage. It's really unique. So watching those behaviors and seeing it, you, you can't, it would be hard for me to argue that they don't see that and understand what they're doing. Just because yeah. of seeing how just, how they move through it it's it would be hard to argue that it was a mistake this this just on a side note but this book right here um yep oh my god that just i'm like going through it this uh the secret social lives of reptiles totally i I mean totally is blowing my mind like just the the, the, just holy shit (laughs) The, yeah, the, the, the way they think, and I, I, I think over the years we've gotten comfortable just being like, eh, reptiles are just they're the they're a pre they're a the prehistoric you know very low organism, and we've just gotten used yeah. to it. They're all just dinosaurs. They're old. They're 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 very primal, and mm-hmm. they're not at all. They're incredibly evolved, yeah, like crazy machines that are just just dialed into stuff that we can't even fathom. I mean. They can smell in 3D and they can see heat signatures. I can't do either of those things. So, like, <laughs> they're infinitely yeah. more evolved than I am. They're other doing than, better than I uh, yeah. Yeah, like, the, what I can do is I can sharpen a stick. That's why I don't die. They can see me in right. the dark and then smell me in three dimensions. Like, sorry, dude, yeah. you win. I can poke you with a pointy stick that I made. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's it. Like, we're, we're, we're so, pretty low on the totem pole. 
So as far as UV goes, I'm just curious of your thoughts on this and then we'll talk some Timor pythons. But <laughs> like, do you have any thoughts about like cycling UV as far as either throughout the day, throughout the year, the, the amount, the intensity, um, anything like that? Do you think that it could have an impact on like maybe breeding some of these uh, more difficult, whether it doesn't necessarily have to be snake, it could be any kind of reptile, but the more difficult type of of uh, of uh, you know reptile to breed. Am, am I am I off base in thinking no, that way? I, I, is it- I think you're definitely there, and there is there is a there is a way to kind of cycle them. So so di- like zoos that I've that uh, San Diego Zoo does it where they have theirs on from mm. like not don't tell me ex- I can't tell you exact, but their lights change throughout the day to slowly give uh-huh. them a morning warm up. Then the UV is like ten to two or ten to three the height of the day, and then it comes back down. Nice thing about the the, the uh, UV diodes and our bulbs is they're actually dimmable, so you actually could put it on a dimming cycle throughout the day if you wanted to. Um, nice. And the the I, I would it depends on what you do. If you if you were going to do a tube light, I would say absolutely dim it if you can, or only do a couple hours in the middle of the day. Really, the animals should be able to get away from it and lower their stress. If you're doing a spotlight, especially for something that's crepuscular, I would say just turn it on all day, have it in one side and one corner so they can regulate themselves away from it, and then they can move towards it if they want more. Um, or, or if it's like a bearded dragon, something like that, then you could do just you could do a 10 to 2 and just blast a basking spot in the middle. Um, but yeah, no, gradients make a difference. Going Changing throughout the day makes a difference. You could definitely change that UV cycle along with your light cycle if that's uh, something that's an important piece of the species you're working with and cycling them. Um, I would definitely right. do it. I mean, it, the big thing is once you add UV to that enclosure, you're adding an entirely different viewable world to their to their to them so it's absolutely going to affect how they how they breed here's a good example so uh two years ago there was a study that came out actually right around january of i want to say 19 it was um a study that came out that showed that and you've probably seen a lot of these recently all the bioluminescence and fluorescence in reptiles that was one of the first ones that came out and it was on chameleons and it looked at chameleons from mostly from madagascar and africa and looking at like panther chameleons and the bony tubercles in their head so those bony structures on their head aren't scales they're actually bone and it's covered by a thin layer of skin uv certain wavelengths of uva cause the bone to fluoresce neon green or blue and they can see those wavelengths during the day and we can't so from tree to tree panther chameleons can see Basically, their face, their head looks like Avatar, like out of Avatar, glowing spots and a pattern on their head. Females and males have different patterns on their head. So from a tree, they can tell whether it's a male or female based on the glowing pattern on their their skull. So where we we can't even fathom that, but they can see that. So that absolutely, that makes a big difference to how that animal sees, is that another male that I need to guard my territory from? Or do I got to start strutting my stuff? Like... Right. That makes right. a big difference, and that makes a big difference for a lot of different animals, especially we've we've taken UV out of the equation for snakes for the entirety of husbandry, really, up till now. I think we're going to start to see some really big things happen when we all start putting UV back on those animals because they're going to see their world different. They're going to have dip, their pheromones, their, their hormonal changes could be – I'm interested to see how that changes. There's a lot of different changes that happen with UVA and the, the way that those – affect serotonin and and the hormones in their bodies. I think it's going to cause a massive change in how these animals breed and how successful we're able to be by getting more natural behaviors out of them. Especially one of the biggest things is just 
the reduction in stress and the more natural feeling that they get from that lighting, just mm-hmm. that alone is going to have, I think, an incredible impact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> not to compare it to us, but like I just think of how I feel during the winter and not being able to get out into the sun as opposed to you know how you feel when you're out in the sun. It's just, oh, yeah. it's a it's a real thing. That is that is yeah. exactly that is an actual palpable thing that anybody can understand of how UVA affects us. Same thing with seasonal depression. If you buy one of those, so <laughs> anybody who ha- get like you see those uh, like mood lights, like people right. have seasonal yeah. depression light to sit under that lights mm-hmm. uva that's what it is it's a uva emitting light <laughs> right that's because that affects our brains as well it affects serotonin development and, it, and it's you see you know what i did i you get, i saw this i the first time i ever did a really comparative analysis it was just myself and not study but it's just for me anecdotally i took a dozen baby amazon tree boas that i had and i put six of them with uv and six without now amazon tree boas we all know are nasty little worms that hate you and that's why, again, why I love them. And, mm-hmm. and, and and when you see them in captivity, you find a lot of them, they sit on the ground a lot. They kind of hide under, under, under stuff. You don't see them arboreally, arboreally very often in captivity. And I think, and so I noticed that the ones that had no UV, they were, they weren't lethargic, but you kind of like, I'd open the cage and they'd see you. And then I'd kind of poke them with a pinky and they'd eat it. You know, like they were aware, but you kind of had to get them going before they were like in strike mode. The ones that had UV were sitting up in the branches watching me the moment I came in the room and watching me the whole time. They took pinkies off the tongs in a second. They were more natural behaving. They were more alert. They were more aware of me and when I was moving around. Um, I didn't have to kind of get them going before they noticed me. And it, to me, it kind of it kind of came back to like the same thing, like what you're saying with like rainy and sunny days. Like, but if you have a buddy who's got hits a depression funk, trying to get him off the couch to do something, th- versus somebody who's really happy and they're like, all right, let's just go. Like, you, I saw that behavior in those animals. Mm, it was wow. that was almost a very similar behavior. And and anecdote, like I say, anecdotal, but it was very similar in the way that like I kind of had to get those. It's an Amazon. If it sees me, it should try to bite my face off. And you, and then right. you see it, but like, you kind of got to get them alert to you. And then you wiggle the, you know, the, the mouse in front of them, they grab it and they're aware, but the, like, I'm telling you, put UV on an Amazon tree boa and just let it have a nice UV enclosure with a lot of branches and it will hover up at eye level and watch you <laughs> constantly. And it's awesome. awesome. It just makes so much more of a unique animal and a better experience. And you just see the habits of the animal change. And it's very, it's very much like watching an somebody who's depressed kind of come out of it and then have be more active and more just natural. Like you see that in the animals. Right. That's awesome. It's really cool. cool. So we're going to shift gears for a second here and talk Timor pythons, right? Oh, yeah. one thing I, the one thing I love what you got going on is you have quite the group of Timor pythons. And one of the things that I think like a lot of times, like these people that kind of like, you know, Owen's kind of the same thing with white lips. Like he has this big, huge group of them and stuff, but like, you know, they, they get like a pair of these harder breeds and they're going to, and they're, they're going to figure gonna, it out. I'm yeah, going to no. be the one, you know, and yeah. it's kind of the bummer about bowl and I, right. Because right. it's such so expensive, you know, that I don't necessarily think they get into the hands of people 
that could really work with them with such a big group that notice right. these different individual things as opposed to what the species behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I love what you're doing there. Let's talk Timor <laughs> Pythons. Why Timor Pythons? What is it about them? Why not Timor you know? Pythons? We already established yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, oh, exactly. Yeah, I've loved Timor since the first one I ever saw. And honestly, I mean, I've, I've kind of always yeah. watched them. And where I got the jump in was I, I, I like the Indo-Pythons. I, there's something about the Indonesian species, like the just the body makeup of like Maclots, the Liasis, long, thin-bodied snakes that are agile but still muscular. That's some reason that's what I tend to lean towards. So yeah, the carpets, the liasis, the all of that type of body style is the snakes that really catch me. Like I've tried bloods and things like that, but it's a giant red turd and it just doesn't do it. Thank you. Right. You yeah. know, please, God, somebody who's on the same page as me. Like all I'm right. happy for everybody that does it. They're awesome and they're amazing yeah, snakes yeah. and they More deserve respect. power to you. But I keep, I'm good over like, here. <laughs> I get one. I, I, I got a buddy who does some work with them. Ryan yeah. Boy does some awesome work with them, and he gets me excited yeah. about them. And then I get them, and then I have them for a while, and then I'm just like, and then I give them to yeah. somebody, and I'm like, nah, that's it. <laughs> and then like a year later, he gets me all excited again, and I'm like, get get another one, and then and then I give it away mm. again, and I'm like, and then my <laughs> wife's like, seriously, just stop. And I'm like, stop I, I know, that. like it, but like it's cool, yeah. and yeah, yeah. So, it is. But for the for the for the uh, the Timors, I always liked them, and I found on Craigslist. Somebody near me was Wait, selling. Whoa, 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 oh, yeah. whoa! On, on Craigslist outside of Chicago, uh. somebody was selling a captive bred pair that were two years old for seven hundred bucks. So, he had a head injury too. What yeah, the hell? So, well, this is before everything got crazy, but still, that okay. was cheap. That was still That's the still. price of that was still the price of one wild caught. Yeah, so, Jesus. So I called this person up, this young lady, and I'm like, where did you get them? She got them from Gourmet Rodent, which is one of the yep. only people who have captured them. Yep, yep. And it was at Tinley in like 2017 or something, which was one of the last. It was one of those dates, yep. but I knew it was one of the last times they bred them. Last times they were there so, with them, yeah. Yep. So she picked them up, and I grabbed that pair. So I'm like, okay, I can't pass that up. And then mm -hmm. I picked up another one at Daytona, and I picked up a seven-foot captive bred female from uh, – Daniel Solis out, out in California when I was out there. And nice. um, and I, we just kind of kept going. And every time I got a chance to grab one, I did because I just I really liked him. And a big thing for me and Erica is we we focused a lot on species that a lot of people keep, but we always have stayed away from the mainstream stuff just because actually it kind of came down to when I, we started dating and she ran the rescue and she's like, I don't want you to breed animals that we see every day. And I'm like, that's, uh, yeah, that's I reasonable. That. I don't feel yeah. like I should be breeding leopard geckos while we're taking in 10 a day. You know, like yeah. that, yeah. I, I'm like, I can agree to that. So I had some, uh, a pretty decent sized collection of like really crazy morph boas and I moved all those out. Um, and I didn't really do much with a lot of the common stuff anyway. Um, you know, so it wasn't too much. It was really just the boas. And then it was, okay, well, let's focus on stuff that's a little bit less commonly kept. And that's where teamers and a lot of this stuff fell into. It was... I, it was crazy. I'm, I was like, I'm sick of seeing so many amazing animals come in and just never get established because nobody yeah. wants to put in the time. And and that's the thing. These people get, like you said, they get one pair, they try the first year, they don't breed, and then they give up and sell them. I don't even try to get, I don't even try to get my animals to breed until they've been in captivity for at least three years. Right, Three and that's the, they, they raise it, it up to the magic ball python number. This yep. is my two-year-old male and my four-year-old female. And then they don't breed, and then they're like yep. broken. Sell, and they sell the pair to two different people, and then it's like great. So now we're 
back again. So yeah, yeah. I don't expect my Timors to breed until they're seven or eight years old. I yeah, like, uh, yeah. to be honest, I never got I didn't get my olives to breed until they were eight. Yeah, like I don't want them to. I want them. Yes, they probably could when they're younger, and that's fine. But I'd rather get healthier clutches. Have yeah. mom do better. I'd rather have the animals do better. The babies hatch and be stronger, and then on top of it, not act, not not shorten the lifespan span of my animal by forcing it to produce eggs when it's not ready yet. Right. And let it tell me when it's ready. You know, and like the whole grams thing kills me. Everybody, I, I love when somebody asks me like, "How many grams does my animal need to be?" And I'm like, "I don't know. However many grams it is at eight years old." That's yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've never weighed mine. It's that yeah, big. I don't like, weigh you know. my steaks. And I don't feed. And then they're like, oh, how often do you feed it? And I'm like, when I see when them I feel like it. around looking for food, I'm like, oh, well, yeah. where, in, where in the wild do they go? Oh, dude, it's four o'clock on Sunday. It's time to Start go eat. Start throwing mice at the snakes. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> it's chaos. And that's honestly, that's actually where I think a lot of people get cage aggression from is because you get animals that learn the cycle. They learn when their food's coming and they get excited. Open the door. And yep. the door's coming for food. Our animals aren't as... Well, they're all they're, they're all cage aggressive because they're all just dicks, but yeah. not because they're that. But we 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 feed them sporadically. It might be once a month, and then it'll be twice this month. And then when we get to a certain time of the year where I up the humidity and up their feeding to cycle them, then they get fed weekly or every five to ten days. But up until then, it's I don't know. I forget for a couple weeks because I'm busy, mm-hmm. and then I feel the <laughs> waters are good and. They're all hiding and they seem pretty content. And then a week later, half the wall, they're all cruising at night and cruising all over the place. I'm like, oh, you guys are hungry. So I go yep. through and we feed them all. And then they just hang for a while longer. And same thing with the lizards, like all the monitors, like, oh, when do you feed them? And I'm like, when they look hungry and they're moving around hunting, <laughs> like I can see right. their hips, but they, I can see where they're at, but I, they're not spiked out, but I can see them. I can right. see their, I can see their rib cage, but it's not sticking out. So they're all healthy and thin because you know what? Big, kind of like 400 pound dudes don't do real great in the sack. And I'm mm. expecting that 400 pound dude versions of reptiles probably also don't do real good in the sack. And I need mm, him right. to be like good at that. <laughs> That's like the yeah, whole goal. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, when she cycles, he better be right there yeah, and ready exactly. to go because. Yeah, I don't want that's him, to be, I don't want him to be like my show's on and I'm kind of I'm going to eat I'm another good. jar of ice cream and then like maybe I'll think about it. I need him no, no, to be no, like get your ass in there. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Exactly. I need him to be like 16 year old me. Like just there's a hole. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, also, you, you might get some of the background of Erica being in the room. If she throws <laughs> stuff at you, we totally support this. That's fine. So, that, is, um, that is every podcast or video I'm ever on. That is the signature of how you know that someone's talking to me is at some point you hear a super high pitched Ryan. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right I mean, the doorbell That's... will ring and zeros and uh, uh, Eric's dachshunds will start screaming. And if I'm too loud, <laughs> I'll hear something get thrown against the door over there. So yeah, it it, it happens. <laughs> yeah, but no, but that's that's kind of what brought us to the, the, the to, to Timors and stuff. It was just I wanted to work with stuff that people weren't working with. I thought it was it was more fun to both of us and more of a challenge to find things that weren't like look ball pythons, corn snakes, all that stuff's great. But everybody already knows how to breed those. Like yeah. breeding them might be fun, and I've done it. Like I love hatching baby snakes. I love letting my daughters see baby corn snakes hatch out. It's super cool. We use them to talk sure. about genetics with kids that are in the herb society and stuff. Like there's definitely a lot of great reasons to have those animals. But for me, 
it's a formula. I don't need to do anything. It does. I don't, I'm not learning anything or no having exploration. to figure things out. Yeah. Or yeah, like there's no, there's no inquisition. It's not, I don't have to like figure things out. I don't have to be, I don't have to investigate things. I don't have to like learn. I can just literally flip switches and feed them and put them together and it and do what they do. And that's where this is more fun for us. It's harder and there's a lot more heartbreak and pain and strong, like struggling, but the payoff is so much better. Like, I, don't, I got five eggs out of a snake I've had for 15 years and I almost <laughs> cried. Like yeah, right. that is the buildup of like failures and breeding that didn't happen and watching so many ovulations get reabsorbed and, you know, animals passing away and having to find new ones and just, mm-hmm. you know, go all the things in our life that made it difficult. And it's just over and over and over and over again. And it just, then when you finally get there, like, I watch these guys that breed massive collections of, like I said, ball pythons or colubrids. And I don't mean to pick on, but that's just what most big collections are, you know, and and they walk around and they're just like, they have bins stacked up of eggs. They're writing on them. They bring it through on a cart to the incubator or whatever. And like, it's just a normal day. It's just a job. It's just, it's just breeding season. Like that's great. But like, man, seeing that girl that, that my, my female on eggs, like there was nothing, there's nothing that can compare like it was just the yeah. coolest, coolest moment, and I, I'm you starting to get all like my heart's getting all fluttery just talking about it. Like I'm getting all excited. <laughs> and again. So it's like you know what I mean. Like, but that's every animal, yeah, every animal in our house is one of those. So we're not going to get ten clutches a year. I might get one or two, but those one or two or three are going to be Maclots or Savus or Timors or you know right. Southern White Lips, and like every single one of the things I might get is one of the coolest things I've ever been able to work with in my life. And it makes, it makes this more than just a hobby that we do for fun. And it's something that drives us internally, like just drives us to learn more and experience more with these animals. And the more I have to learn to get them to breed or to, to do better or to thrive, the more I appreciate them. And it just, even the stuff we do to train our animals and like spots, like we, we point train our monitors and just, Every single thing you can learn, it just gets cooler and cooler and cooler and cooler. And yeah, it's like this, just this, this rabbit hole of just getting more and more excited and nerdy about this little <laughs> lizard that comes from an island that nobody really cares about. Like, but to right. me, I'm just like, I giggle like a little kid and I'm just like, oh, this is so cool. You know? And yeah. like, that's where it's fun. Like, that's what I tell people. Like, I, I, you know, oh, oh, what's the coolest thing? You, it was funny. I was talking to, I was with, um. With Mark Bell and we were talking with some people, we were talking and some people came up and we were talking to them and, and somebody asked like, oh, what's the coolest thing you guys ever kept? And me and Mark are like, actually, I'm like, dude, actually the coolest thing I've ever hatched out for me was long tailed grass lizards, <laughs> like the $6 <laughs> thing from Petco, like they're tiny little tagus with like, it'd be like me carrying like a 40 foot rope that weighed half, double my body weight and having to run from predators. Like evolutionarily wise, that animal is Makes ridiculous, no sense, yeah. and I think it's awesome. And then when they hatch, like their tails neon orange, they look nothing like they do as adults. And and when they go to sprint away, their tails so heavy they kind of burn out if they're not on a good surface. So because they can't get a grip to drag the weight of their tail, oh my but it's God. just cool. Right. And then to take an animal that people take for granted and be able to hatch it and watch it grow and like that's the thing. Like and Mark was the same thing. His was like 
olive tree skinks or something, some $20 right. lizard on a table. And I'm, I tell people, like, that's what gets me going. I don't go to the the guys like the Justin Kabilka with the $20,000 ball python morph and all that. I go to Triple L's table, and I walk around for the lizard that they don't even know what the scientific name is, and that's what I want. <laughs> that thing that was yeah. $7, it looks weird. They don't even know where it came from. It just showed up in a shipment, and they don't know what it is. And I'm like, that that's what I want. Because I want to take all of them you have. I'm going to figure out what it is. I'm going to key it out. Then I'm going to start researching where it comes from. Then I'm going to work on breeding it and cycling it. And I'm going to figure this thing out. And then when I breed it and I'm successful, I'm, that's awesome. Now I've, I, I'm going to add all that knowledge into the hobby. And I'm going to pass that project to somebody else to keep it going. And then I'm going to pick the next coolest thing that I find. So, like, we have our main collection of animals. But we always also have, like, a couple tanks where we just rotate fun projects. Like, it just keeps things interesting. It makes it so I never stop learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the thing of it too is like when you step out, but so this is what I've recently, I've always been curious about monitors and I recently delved into Aki monitors as, you know, one of, obviously Australia is my love, oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But uh, like, I find that like when you step outside of your box in the reptile hobby, and you mm-hmm. start to learn things about the stuff that's in your box. Yep. that you never thought about it because you start to look at it different in a different perspective, a different perspective yeah. you know? Yep. And you're like, huh, I wonder if that would work with my carpet pythons or I wonder how that, you know, whatever it would be. And I don't know, it just starts to, to your point, it just it continually keeps you learning, not only about, you know, the species that you're working with at that time, but like maybe a species that you want to work with or have worked with and you think about it in a different way. Um, right. To me, that's, you know, always super cool. And there's a ton of different stuff that I've run into like that, like um, monitors, speaking of monitors, like you're talking Australian dwarf monitors, all the Odatria that live there. Me and Erica had, I had Pilbarensis and Gil and I and Kingorum and, and, Brum- nice. and um, uh, Primordius, and we had most of the available species in the U.S. And I, over a span of like two to three years, I think I went through seven pairs of Kingorum that I bought as adults that died due to kidney failure, dehydration issues from their past. Mm. All of them had gout or were, and were missing toes. And it got to a point where like, I luck out because Erica being an exotic CVT and she's worked in zoos and like, she's one of the most knowledgeable people on reptile uh, medicine in the, in the country. And, and she lives with me, which is pretty awesome. So she never <laughs> sees everything. And we, uh, we get a good idea of what's happening with these animals. And I just, Every single one of those animals died because they weren't given proper husbandry. And some of those animals came from some of the top guys in the country that do that, that are known for it. And it just killed me because I'm like, you know what? Everybody's looking at this wrong. They're looking at a picture of Australia and the Mm -hmm. desert and they're looking at a big rocky outcrop and they're going, the temperature on that rock's 200 degrees. That's what we need to keep them at constantly. So we need a dry enclosure with 200 degree or 150 degree basking spot. The problem is, and if you've been to Australia and you look at a rock like that, the surface on the rock yeah. in the middle of the day is totally 180 degrees. It's hot as hell. However, underneath that rock is 70 degrees, 80 degrees, in, and there's humidity in the dirt. And then in the crack mm-hmm. of that rock, it's 90 degrees, and there's a little humidity. If you get deeper into that crack, the humidity is almost like a tropical rainforest in there. That yeah. one rock has 20 different microclimates inside it, and you're not doing that in the enclosure. You're focusing on the external pieces. The one. Yeah. So they, they create too dry of a habitat that doesn't have enough humidity and, and, and the animal gets dehydrated, gets gout, has kidney failure. And then they, because it's a monitor, 
they feed it, you know, the turkey diet and all this other stuff and too fat of stuff. So it gets gout and all these other issues like King Gorham are specifically they're spider eaters. They, the reason King, this is really cool. And Eric actually found this when we were researching that they use their tail in the wild. They go into a little crevice, they open their mouth and they move their tail around to scare the bugs out of the crack into their mouth. They corral the bugs with their tail and corral them into their mouth. Like, and this is deep in these crevices where they spend most of their time. And that's the other portion of husbandry that we have really wrong with a lot of animals is think about this. So when you create, if we're going to create an enclosure for a Gangorum, we're going to do a 40 breeder because that's giant for a pair of Gangorum. And you build it out to look exactly like the Rocky outcrops in Australia. And then we give them a little, little like box, like a lay box on one side. It's probably, you know, pretty small on one side. You got their basking spot. You got all these rocks. You can even put live plants in there and you got a water dish on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Those animals in the wild spend almost all day and all night, other than when they go out to eat or to bask, in those cracks in that tiny little spot hidden. Because it's 180 degrees on the rock. You don't want to be out on it for more than eight seconds. So they're right, in those right. cracks. Ooh, where's that from? Our male Chihuahua. Oh, we have Chihuahua eggs. Sorry. Um, oh. <laughs> no, but, nice. um, cool. So, so the, sorry, she came over with those and totally caught me off guard. Anyway, so, so we're, <laughs> so we have, um, uh, uh, so we take these animals and we look at that big thing and, and we build their enclosure and where they spend 90% of their time, we make 10% of their cage. And then yeah. where they spend 10% of their time on the surface, we make that the other 90% of their cage. Why do we design the enclosures opposite of where they spend their time? And then on top yeah. of it, that den, that's where a lot of the really important husbandry comes in. The humidity, the temperature, how they sit in there, because that's where they spend most of their time. And we put it in a Rubbermaid, like a, a, a Tupperware container with a hole in it that we can't yep. really regulate. We can't control the humidity or heat really well. And we kind of just wedge it in there and hope they dump eggs in it. But that is so much more than that to them, and we don't look at it like that. And that, in turn, again, recreates a ton of those problems because I think in my eyes, and this this kind of hit me like six months ago, I think we're looking at husbandry completely backwards when we're talking setups. I think we need to rethink it and think more, where do they actually spend the majority of their time, and let's design the majority of their cage to be like that, directed mm-hmm. at where mm-hmm. they spend the majority of their time, and how do we get them the husbandry we need in those areas not like they have a ton of UV, but it's in the spot that they don't ever stand ever. Like that right. doesn't do them any good. So right. I think we got to th- kind of rethink that, but I think that kind of comes back to a lot of that. And so there's a whole huge tangent on, you know, with the monitors, but that was something that I think ends up being a huge problem. And, and that's one thing that I learned too, with even like our, 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 uh, eye and spinulosis, people were putting it, every monitor needs 150 degree basking spot. Where on Roddy Island, this teeny little island off of Timor with a whole bunch of trees on it, it's in the ocean that has ocean breeze constantly and never gets hotter than 86 degrees air temp. Where does it hit 150 degrees? Ever. It doesn't. Maybe on one spot of it. Yeah. Not never. <laughs> the breeze, the breeze alone from the island keeps it from ever being stagnant enough to heat a rock up hot enough to hit that. So, like, it never right. gets that hot. And if you put spinulosis in a cage with a uh, uh, basking temp over 100 degrees, it cranks their metabolism so high, you've got about two weeks before they die. 
Wow. This is why I preach all the time that whatever the species you have, whether it's a corn snake, whether it's an Aki monitor, whether whatever, go and see it in the wild. Yep. See what it's doing. What is the environment like? Mm-hmm. What is the UV like? Where is it at? Where is it? You know, like you just have a whole different perspective of, of the whole way you look at keeping reptiles in a box. When you see it in the wild and like you start to say, huh, okay. Uh, huh. Oh, wow. I, you know, just the, you know, like just the idea of, so like with carpet pythons, humidity used to be this thing. Ah, the same thing with UV. Ah, they don't need it. They don't need it. They don't need it. They don't need it. And I've said it myself. The minute I was in Australia and I find a jungle carpet, the the humidity is 80 plus percent, you know? And it's like, um, Hey, Maybe they, maybe they do maybe, need maybe it. Maybe they don't need <laughs> you, you, it to live. You don't get that out of a maybe, picture on Google. Yeah. And that's no. the problem. We, we look at everything to macro habitat and not down to the specifics enough. And you're absolutely so right. Even, if you're not there, it's impossible to know that. Yeah. And it started me thinking like, okay, um, all right, well, we seem to have respiratory infect and besides NIDO and all that, I'm not talking about that, but just like, you know, mm-hmm. routinely in the wintertime, right, here yep. in the Northeast, you, you routinely get, you know, these respiratory infections. Maybe the reason we're getting respiratory infections is because just like us, our lungs, their lungs are drying out, creating, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just, it's like they need that humidity maybe for that, you know? Uh, so I don't know. No, just Absolutely. You I can mean, learn so much from from doing that. That's yeah. one thing that me and Eric had talked about. So, like, it was with being working with Zilla, I was traveling to all the shows. So, I was buying animals all the time, which right, had to come right. to a stop real quick because we ran out of space. Yep. <laughs> and also, I had to stop buying animals because we ran out of space. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm a kid in a candy store. I nerd out over the stupidest little $5 gecko. It's hard. It's, it's yeah. the struggle's real, man. Yeah. Um, so, Erica's like, stop doing that. And I'm like, okay. So, I started bringing home art from, like, the auctions and artists and stuff. And, like... Now our walls are totally covered, and she's like, "Okay, we have, space. We have, yeah, we have fifty <laughs> things that we have to hang up in the room against the wall in a pile." I'm like, all right, next, then next thing, all right, well, I'll just pick up some books. So then books. Now we have a full bookshelf, and I need to turn we need to turn another wall into a bookshelf. And she's like, "So we're talking." I'm like, "All right, we gotta kind of just stop filling our house up with crap because like we need a bigger house, and at some <laughs> point, every one of these collections has to come to an end." So instead, what we started talking about is like, "Yeah, we want to start going to see this stuff." I want to sit in in the Solomon Islands in a ghillie suit in the jungle, and I just want to sit there with a, a notepad and a, pe- a pen and a camera. You find. And I yeah. just want to watch for spinulosis and see how, what they do. What do they do? What do they What do they come from? Where do I think they're spending their time? If I flip over some logs and stuff, what do I find? What kind of bugs are there? Where are they eating? What, right. what, are, what are they eating? How are they doing it? Like, mm-hmm. how does what does one of these monitors? What does its daily life look like? And then what does that habitat right. really look like? Because from a picture, you might see ferns and like all this two foot tall, small foliage, but I'm not seeing the ground cover and what's really down there. How are they utilizing it? Are there burrows and things around? So like, we want to go do that. I want to go to Sawu Island and see the Savus in person, <clears throat> even though it's insanely expensive and hard to get there. And it's a tiny <laughs> little island and that's the only thing that lives there really. Like, right. but it's just like, yeah, I'm going to spend a week to get to this island to be like found one and then leave. Like, and then go, yeah. Because I can walk from side to side in one day and back. Right. Like, so, you know, but like, that's still something I want to get to. Same thing with like Lesser Sunda to see the Timors. Like, yeah. I, I, I want to go find them and see that stuff and then bring back what I can. Like, I, 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 I like seeing I like Ari's book and seeing what he did with the Bolanai. 
like being able yeah. to see how they're actually finding them in the wild all packed into a giant pile of crap. Like they just move all this crap and sticks into a rotting mass and they're like, I'm home. And then they dig this a plastic yeah. size yeah. hole in it Perfect. and jam themselves in it. Like yep. you would right. never, you would never do that in captivity. Like no one would have right. ever done that. If you gone, Oh, they want to be smashed into a little hole and don't clean their poop because that's how they, that's like candles to them. <laughs> that's, that's their pheromonal yeah. track of I'm here and I'm ready for you. And if you clean it out, that's bad. Like that's that was bad, the hardest yeah. part for Erica while we were cycling all our snakes. I'm like, don't clean the cage. And she's like, but there's a turd right there and I have to get it. And I'm like, don't, nope. don't touch it. No, <laughs> nope, nope. Oh, it was, it was, dude, that was the, that was the tension in this house was palpable, palpable. Like you can, you, you do <laughs> one. I was, just picked clean all my Timor's olives and, yep. um, and white lip cages. Like, yep. cause I finally <laughs> gave up the ghost on the white lips. I'm like, all right, it's not happening this year. So I was through there today or yesterday with like a bucket. I'm like, turd, turd. Yep. Turd, she did it uh, the day I told her. I was like, "All right, everybody who's gravid is gravid. Everybody else is not going to cycle, so we're we're done. Yeah. This is it." Like the next day, <laughs> there were bags and bags and bags of mulch at the house, and she was just wiping them out. Like I yeah. left, I was out of town for a day, and when I came back, the whole back room was done. And she <laughs> she was just like, "That's it. They're done. It's good. We're good." I'm I feel okay. better. Okay. Yeah, like, <laughs> it was okay. So, yeah, but I get it. Even me, I was like, because people are like, oh, we want to come video the collection. And we're like, yeah, in a month when we clean it. Because I'm not explaining <laughs> yeah, right this now. on the video. Yeah. You know, but no, like, yeah. So that that was, you know, some of that. But like, we don't know that stuff unless you go out and see it and start to think about it. And like, mm-hmm. how do we yeah. interpret that when it comes back to in the house and in this box? And how can we make this box more than a box? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, when we were in Texas, I was taken you know, temperature, ambient temperature, humidity, UV reading, oh, yeah. all these different things. And like, just, you know, I, I'm never going to keep a rattlesnake uh, probably ever again in my life, but you know, but you don't know just, yet. Maybe. I don't know. Well, it's just, I think it's just good like, knowledge to have. Like it just, yeah. yeah. yeah I, just, I, and I feel like if I'm understanding more when you're there. Yeah, maybe they come out when it's a certain, you know, maybe you'll start to see certain trends and stuff and, and oh, when you definitely. find them as opposed to, temperature and stuff well, so road cruising have, in california I, I got used to temp gunning the road i know what temps out in the desert where i go the snakes start to come out so i just drive right. around and temp gun and then as soon as it hits that temperature now i know to slow down and start looking hey ryan mm-hmm. what temperature is that and, and and i'm being told i should say that temperature is roughly around 86 degrees that's where you want the ground temp to be at night if you're road cruising in south to south central uh, california out in the desert Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Once it gets we'll down keep... to seventy, like seventy six to seventy eight, go home. You have to, you're wasting Worthless. your time after that. Got it. Yeah, we'll, we'll log yeah. that away in case we do a California trip anytime <laughs> soon. Go. Yeah, yeah. So I have, I, I, I have. I mean, we could, we could go on and on, but I have a question, and then Owen will do the closing questions. Um, but so, where do you see as somebody that's, I, you know, I'm looking at you guys as like, you know, the next step in innovate, innovating the reptile hobby. You know, you're giving the people the ability to be able to sort of take some of the guesswork out of it or make it a little bit easier to understand. With you know, it seems like that's the way that you guys seem to be going from what I've seen so far yep. and make uh, actual reptile products that 
uh, to your point, I think you said earlier, like apply to more of the nerdy type of, you know, you want the Zilla stuff and the, and mm-hmm. the Zoomed and all that kind of stuff because you got that entry level reptile person. But let's face it, once you're in, then we got you're you. In. Yeah. <laughs> you're oh, yeah. in, you know what I mean? It's, Get the hooks it's only you. a matter of time before you're traveling halfway around the world to see your reptile in the, in the wild. But, uh, you know, where do you see the reptile hobby going? Like, what's your vision of, of where where you want to see the reptile hobby go? You know, mm-hmm. this last weekend at Schomburg <clears throat> kind of gave me a, vi- a a new view on where the hobby's going, and I'm more excited than I've been in even a long time. So we brought we brought to the show with us um, our three bulbs and our meters. The lowest right. output bulb that's for crepuscular species, snakes, geckos, things that typically don't need UV, that that was the big fight every year, or that's the big fight with people. Those species is what that first call bulb was made for. That's the one I sold out of. In a million wow. years, I never would have guessed that. I brought 20% of the stock I, of the other two of that and sold out of it. And never would have saw that coming. And then on top of it, the UV meters we brought, I brought. I only brought eight thinking they're a little expensive. People don't really think like that. Um, it's, it's a learning curve for us to get people to start thinking like that. I right. sold them all in the first hour on Saturday. That's awesome. That's And that wow. was just... That just messed with me all weekend because I'm like, it, that's not what I expected. I expected the higher output bulbs, the more common animals, that to be, I thought it was going to be more of a fight to get people to get those bulbs. But I had people for the first, I had more people on Saturday buy, ball, uh, buy UV bulbs for their ball pythons than I've sold to people in the entirety of the time I've worked in the pet industry. So wow. Because wow. I'm pretty sure that <laughs> the entirety of that 20 something years is like, I don't know, three bulbs maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people were buying them for their cresties, for their for their leeches, for everything. And those are animals that legit need it and can use it and benefit from it. And it, it was the conversations we had just me and Erica have been on tons of podcasts. This is my drum that I beat all the time is UV. It's right. something that we we sorely underutilize. We don't understand enough. People don't understand enough about it. And it's not prioritized enough. And that is my that and, and nutrition are my two big drums to bang on. Um, just because those are the two places we lack the most, I think. And it's, it was really cool to just see people coming up and starting to think outside the box and hear the things that we're putting out there and hear other people jumping onto that call of we can do better, we can think differently. And I got to see that for the first time in a long time at Schaumburg. And it's just awesome. And I think a lot of that is, is there's a wave of that coming of we're sick of looking at drawers. We want to do better by the animals. Bioactive mm-hmm. is taking off. We, we, we're starting to see people build these incredible enclosures that are just inspiring for all of us. And, and we want that in our house. And we're starting to learn more and think more and hear those people that are saying the things like me and Erica are about how to think differently. And people are waking up and they're more open to it. And I think that next generation of keeper are starting to get more into that mentality of what's the best we can do for our animal. And I feel like we're getting out of that. Who, whoever has the most wins mentality. Right. And, and that's right. the thing that's exciting to me the most, because as soon as we start to get into that mentality of we can always do better, we can always learn more that that's, that's man, that's the gasoline that this hobby needs to explode and just take off. If everybody gets that mentality, then we're that, that, that exponentially the whole hobby is going to is going to explode forward technologically like, i don't want to be the last company to pop up and think outside the box 
I, I want right. 20 more to pop mm-hmm. up this year and be competition. And we all are trying to advance the hot husbandry and advance it and make it better and make the animals lives better and keep them longer, all that stuff. Like that has to be our goal. And just seeing that more, I'm so excited for what the future brings for our hobby. I think that we're going to get to places that we've never even thought of. I think, I think that big naturalistic enclosures, UV on everything, you know, better controls, Wi-Fi controls, more controllability and bringing more natural behaviors and, and, and natural enclosures back through using those technologies. I think we're going to see that coming really quickly in the future. Um, some of it I know is going to come really quickly in the future because we're <laughs> the ones doing it. Um, <laughs> but I can't say anything more because the CEO is over there and she has what looks like a huge log. Right? You got it. Yeah, it's smart. Um, <laughs> but no, but like that's that's where I see the future going. I think the biggest thing that I want everybody to think about is, is it, when it comes to the future of the hobby, instead of thinking about like how, how can we just have them? How can we just have reptiles or think about it like it's our right to just have them we're given an incredible, incredible opportunity to have these animals in our life. And it's a privilege that we're given to be able to do that. It's not a right. It's not something that we're guaranteed. It's something that we are are allowed and we're able to do. And that's something amazing. And, and that we need to take a lot more uh, press, like a lot more, we need to hold a lot more value in that. It, it needs to not be something that everybody just thinks ha- is here and it's never going to go away. So Everybody needs to support US Arc. If you're not a US Arc member and you don't do the five dollars a month, then you're a lazy piece of crap and I hate you. And there's no reason for you to exist anymore. Yeah. So yeah. and that's about as nice as I can say it. Because if you yeah. own animals and you are breeding, if you own more than five or you're a breeder, if you're not a US Arc member and you're a breeder, this I have zero respect for you. And that's just the end of the story. Um, because you're yeah. not supporting the thing that's allowing you to do the thing you love. Keep doing so, what you're doing. Yeah. Just makes you a selfish dick and I don't want you on our hobby. so but like we also should be supporting conservation and all that stuff too and all of it all of it needs to be us getting all of that together moving the hobby forward learning from each other and becoming a community again we talk about the reptile community but it's a stupid word it's a stupid way to say it because it's it hasn't it it, for the last 10 years it wasn't it was a reptile industry there was a lot of backstabbing and crap it wasn't in it it wasn't a community but we're changing that and it's changing slowly but surely a lot of those old crusty mentalities and the guys that are like, well, I kept it in a box and this is what I did in 1982 and I'm still going to do it that way. Those guys are, are wearing out and they're becoming part of the past. And, and all yep. that information is becoming a part of the past and people are starting to accept more and learn more and hear people like us and Erica and, and me and everybody that are out there just say repeating and banging that drum so loud all the time that finally it's starting to sink in a little bit. And that's what's exciting me about the future is if we can get people to start thinking about that, who knows what's going to come out of that once we all turn our, we all start thinking outside the box. There's so many people out there that get excited that we're just, I'm just, I mean, it gets me excited to see what's going to come because who's going to get that, that one, like I said, with the the 90, the 90, 10, how we do tanks that just hit me one day. And Mm -hmm. then I really thought about it and started drilling into it. And now I'm trying to work on how can I help, do that in captivity with products and animals and help increase people's or make better people's experience, make the animals lives better. Like now I'm thinking about that and all the different things I can do. And it's small. It's just become this giant thing that has consumed me for six months. I want, I want to hear the next, I want to hear what other people have that moment. What's your moment? Like, what did you have where you went? Oh my God, I never thought about that. And then you change husbandry because of it. And in every single one of those moments gets us closer to, 
these animals being something that we're not just trying to figure out anymore. We can sit down and just feel comfortable. And we could get to a point where yeah. entry level, we could finally have the stuff available for entry level people where they can be successful. Because right now we're not doing that. We're giving them the yeah. equipment right. and expecting them to find the knowledge on their own. But we're giving that equipment going through those major stores. I've said this a couple times to people and I don't think people realize it, but Petco and PetSmart or whatever, whatever pet store, it could be an independent mom pop store. When I go in to buy dog food, I don't have to be an animal nutritionist to get my dog food. I go in, I look for grain free. This one looks good. The person at the store says it's good for your animal or whatever. The grain free is actually bad for your animal, but let's, the buzz, we know what I mean. You, you, right. They give you that bag and you assume sure. that the scientists and the company and that those people there made that and it's at this store because it's good food and you take it home. You don't, you maybe you look it up and you look for reviews, but you're not doing like a spectral analysis of the food and sending it out and you don't understand every single component in it and how nutritionally it's going to work. You just know that your dog does well on that food. It likes it. This good is good food and other people like it. So you use it. Those same people go with that same mentality to that store to get a reptile. And we don't think about it like that as keepers. We, they should be studying. They should be researching before they get a pet. Why would they do that when if they go to get a rabbit, they get the cage, they get the food, they get everything they need. It's given to them mm -hmm. in a way that they say, here's everything you need to take care of your bunny and a little pamphlet. Enjoy. And you leave thinking the same thing when you leave with your dog food. This is all I need. I have everything I need to be successful. They do the same thing with reptiles, except the stuff that's in there, we're not giving you the knowledge on why that stuff's in there or why it works or what it is. And then some He's of those kits are yeah. so dumbed down and thinned, thinned out to be lower expense that they don't actually have what the animal needs and they're not great. And we're mad at the people for not doing the research and like, oh, they got to do their research. But they don't even know that they have to. They're going in there assuming that what they're given is a guideline to be successful. They don't know that. So that's one thing that I want to see change in the future, too. I've gotten off the soapbox of everybody needs to educate themselves better. Because I started thinking about the fact that people that we want to do that don't even know that they need to do that or that they right. should be doing it. It's not that they're choosing not to. It's that they don't know that anything else exists. Like, they don't know that the hobby exists. They don't know reptile shows exist. They don't know that there's other reptiles in captivity other than what's in those four boxes at Petco. Like, this right. whole other world that, that, that it consumes our lives, they don't even know it exists. So, well, that's. That's what drives me with the, the, the network, right? The network yep. of podcasts and like trying to just get that information out there because it just surprises me constantly how many different people like stumble upon NPR yeah. 12 years later. You're like, wait, what? Well, <laughs> yeah. and that's been doing where, this for this long. That's yeah. where we're going with the products is I want to start making the products. This is how I think the products need to be. All reptile products. It should be designed by experts who understand what those animals need and how to get those animals what they need. It needs to be designed in a way where that's, that goal is achieved, but without the user needing to know how and why it happened, they just need to know that they need that piece of equipment to make this thing work. They don't need to know why it works or how it works. And to, for like for me to expect some mom and kid to understand UV lighting, are you kidding? There's adults that are in the industry for 50 years that don't get it. Why would right. I expect that? Right. But I can create a bulb and I'm going to say, you need this for your animal to be healthy. And you don't for ours, you don't need a meter. It's going to last four years. By the time this bulb burns out, it'll still be putting out plenty of UV. That is failure proof to them. Giving them a fluorescent bulb that can... Like, and I'll say it because I can, I've tested Exoterra's bulbs. Their coils don't put off enough UV for your animal to use brand new out of the box. 
So wow. if they do that and then the, they keep it on until the light goes out, by the time that light burns out, it's not putting out barely anything unless the gecko, unless the lizard is like hugging on the it. bulb. In like, it. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, it's getting nothing. And they don't know that. And they don't have any way to know that they don't know that. You know what I mean? Like right. they don't even know that they don't understand. So we need to create products and we need to create stuff that we put that knowledge in there. It's they don't need to know it. They just need to get the box understand that this is everything they need and we need to truly do that, actually make it what they need to be successful and then make right. it just, I should have no instructions. I should be able to just say, put water in this cup, put dirt in this hole and flip that switch and 12 hours on, 12 hours off. That's it. Right. Like, or yeah. there's a panel on it that you just say, go and, and put in right. a time. the timer and it just yep. does it. That's how it should right. be. And then they can enjoy yep. that animal without having to understand every little piece of every single little thing. And because we sold them a $50 kit when it should have been a $300 kit. Like yeah, we right. are, the industry is setting people up to fail. And that's one of the things that we want to fix. Right. That's awesome. Cool. Very, very, very cool. good. <laughs> <laughs> that's the All very, right. very long drawn out wordy version. Of- <laughs> it's a good way though. It's a good, it's a good it. version. I like I it. it. Yeah, that's, that's just, that's what, that's where me and Eric are passionate. I found a while ago, like probably when I was in college, I started doing educational uh, things with kids and stuff and bringing animals out to schools. Before, right before I started the Herp Society, I found that my passion for reptiles, it, it's, I love the animals. It's actually a lot more in, in learning about them and then getting other people excited. I get more passion out of getting other people excited about reptiles than I do about keeping the ones I keep. And that's just something that I think has driven me to do, be who I am and do what I do is I just get more excited to learn and then tell everybody what I learned. And then in a way that they can digest (laughs) and they can use. Now that's actually something else that's going to happen with VivTech. We're actually going to have like a little blog section. Um, I've got Mm -hmm. some veterinary students and some other biology students in college that we're going to have read scientific articles and then create an easily digestible summary article for people to read with all of those links of those articles in there. So you can see here's the science that's been done, but not everybody can read a scientific paper and understand it. But we got people Mm -hmm. who can, and we're going to bring you that information in an easily digestible way, but also show you the backup research about why we need to do that and move in that direction. And I think that's just something that's been missing because everything is, well, so-and-so said from back in 1984 that he did this. (laughs) And then the other person heard it and they heard something different. And the game of telephone turns into put your bearded dragon on tile because tile is a great substrate for lizards that are native to bathrooms. Right. (laughs) Sand is bad. Yeah, Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Cool, 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 cool. All right. Good, Owen. All right. So I guess we'll hit on the closing questions. First one is, of course, uh, if you could have any reptile without limitations, what would it be and why? Ooh. You know what? This is some, it's, it would be a scaly foot. Really? Okay. I, I, Defend your answer. Yeah. First of all, I have to ask if you guys know what I'm talking about. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I figured. So this is what's cool. So it's an Australian lizard. Okay. They're they're basically legless lizards, but they have vocal cords. They're legless geckos. That's cool. And, and instead of no back feet, they have like this little appendage. It looks like a flipper. That's why they're called a scaly foot. 
but yeah, I've been able, I got to, I was, I was at Sandy, I was at, I was at San Diego Zoo and I was in the, I was talking with a cure, uh, Brett Baldwin who runs the reptile house and we were in there look, talking and I mean, dude, this is, there's 40 Fiji iguanas around me and all this just insane, like racks of spider tortoises and stuff. It is just unreal. And I'm, we're talking and I saw the, the name on one of the tanks. I saw the Latin name and I'm like, and I stopped mid sentence and I was like, Brett, is that what I think it is? And he goes, what? I go, is that a, is that a scaly foot? And he lit up too because he realized I knew what it was because nobody else there, even in their department, really knew or cared because it's just some little legless thing that some kid tried to bring back from Australia in his suitcase. And I'm like <laughs> freaking out. I'm like, this is the coolest thing. They can vocal. They're little <laughs> snaky lizards with cool little faces that can vocalize. Like, it's ridiculously cool. And as soon as I touched yeah. it, it started screaming at me and yelling and death rolling. And it was just like trying to bite me. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever is it's trying to kill me. You know, like, I'm like, hey, this is probably also why I love you, because you're tiny and little and you think I should die. And, <laughs> but, like, it was just, that was that animal, man. That What a cool. cool and unique thing that just nobody even knows exists. That's so weird. Like, it looks I like somebody. I was looking it up now. Yeah. yeah I'm like, <laughs> They're somebody, cool. Somebody, somebody took a Kribo and smashed a skink into it and then yeah. became an animal. <laughs> like and their is. face is, they're, they're a legless lizard, but their face is very lizard-like. It's not. Yeah. It's it's not like some, like the Burton's legless lizards that get a weird snaky kind of face or it yeah. is that is a solid skink face, but then yeah. they're a gecko, like super cool. That's so weird. Wow. That's cool. All right. We've never that's had an, that answer. I that's like a it. new one, and I've never heard of it, so I like it. So, all right, cool. All right, we'll take that one. Um, <laughs> If you could go herping anywhere in the world without any limitations, where would you go and what would you be hoping to find? You know what? My I Savu Island, man. I ha, Savu pythons have been a passion of mine since the first one I got on the first day I had it. And I have to see them in the wild. On top of it, what's really cool about Savus is on well, so there's S-A-V-U Savu pythons, but these don't exist in the native language. So it's Sawu Island. It's a W. Um, but anyway, so okay. on Sawu Island, um, the natives there, don't quote me on this cause it's not perfect, but they, they believe something along the lines that if you harm one, it will, it, it will haunt the, like haunt the souls of your past family members that have passed away or it's something bad happens if you harm one. So they're, they don't touch them. They leave them alone. They don't, they're not afraid of them, but they don't, they don't kill them. Like it's. It's one of those few times where that animal is not like the the reincarnation of Satan and you need to cut his head off. Like, Got it. Right. You know, yeah. they, they actually just let him be. And I'm like, I think that's super cool, that cultural aspect. The fact that they live on a four mile by 14 mile island, um, and, you know, just just there's and there. I just want to go see the habitat and see them. This is something I have to do that in my lifetime. Very cool. Um, I guess would you be adding anything to your collection in the coming year? Uh, if my wife listens to this, no, <laughs> uh, no, honestly, Correct. to be totally honest, uh, we kinda, I kinda have everything I've wanted to be honest. I, I've kind of, I got myself into where I want to be. I want to work with the, the, the Offenberg eye and the, the spinulosis for monitors and all the snakes we keep are South Pacific and Australian pythons. And there's always stuff I want to keep. Like, like actually, the only thing left I think I would I would jump on if I had a chance. But you guys will laugh at this because it's the chance is super huge. Uh, I need Dunai, but that's about it. Like Dun's pythons. <laughs> so if anybody's got a spare pair, like I'll totally take it. 
<laughs> like, the baby just got one just yeah, laying around. Just they want to just loud. You know, the done eye. Other, other yeah. than the only two adults in the U.S. that are like thirty years old that have the one clutch, like so, it's, it'll be totally easy to pick up a few of those, right? I would not be surprised if in the next couple of years you start seeing more and more of those. So <sighs> I hope so. Like that's keep your that's, eyeballs peeled. Yeah. That's that's uh, one. That's the only liasis I haven't kept, and that's the only thing in this group of snakes that I kind of keep that I. Well, there's one other one that's never come into captivity. There's a, uh, it's in the Barker's uh, new python of the Malaya, the Malayan archipelago, uh, their new python book. It's, it looks like a Timor, but it's not. And it's from uh, another island. It it has a very similar pattern, almost identical pattern. But a way squished. It looks like a mix between a, the, a the Timor Rinka and, Island. Yeah, Timor. That, it's, yeah. yeah, and it's like it looks almost like a mix between a Timor and an Apodora. Yeah, it's so I'm like, if that magically ever showed up, that would be cool. Just because I think it'd be a unique evolutionary jump between some of those Indo species and Indo. All the Indo islands seem to have this weird Something. like array yeah. from one. Like it's like a blending. It's like a gradient of an animal. In between every species, there's a huge gradient that goes from one side to the other. It's like you could like all the, the the mangrove monitors and the blue tails and the peach throats. It's like you can actually go island to island and just slowly take pictures that slowly morph from one to the other. <laughs> yeah, right? It's just weird how that works. I, I, I'd love to see some more work being done on that. I'd love to see snakes like that in, in captivity. Cool. And uh, what is one? What is something that herpers could do in the hobby to better the industry? They could add <laughs> They could add Vivtex SureSun LED UV bulbs to their enclosures. You <laughs> no. almost said Zilla there. That was I like know, I that. Said, I've been saying Zilla for like six <laughs> and, and a half stuff. years. Uh... <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not the first time I've almost slipped up. But it's like when you get a new job and then you're like, "Hi, welcome to." The price yeah. I worked yeah. out, dang it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. but uh, no, I think adding UV, understanding that kind of stuff is going to be a big thing. And I think just the one thing I want to see everybody do is understand that our hobby is not guaranteed. And mm-hmm. that if you want to keep it up, you need to you need to put your money where your mouth is. And every single person who says they can't afford $5 a month, you're a liar. You're just lazy. Because I was homeless and I could afford $5 a month. Especially yeah, okay. if it was for something that meant this much to me. Um, and then, you know, and then just never accept that your husbandry is as good as it is, is, is done. That's the biggest thing I could say for everybody. If you're going to do one thing, never accept where you're at. Always strive to do better and find ways to get there. Nice. Very cool. Nice. That's a good message to end on. Yes. So, uh, is there anything um, so, you... Yeah, go ahead. Is there anything you want to toss out there as far as like uh, websites plugging of things well, yeah, i probably should tell people where to like get the stuff right like, yeah that might <laughs> yeah. be good <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no, our website um is actually uh, uh gonna be uh, well based on whenever you guys have this out probably already live um but we're going live this uh tomorrow friday uh at 4 p.m uh every, oh, yeah. well, it's live now everybody can go to vivtechproducts.com they'll be able to buy the bulbs from there uh, we're probably gonna run out of stock insanely fast I apologize to everybody when that happens. We will get stuff back in stock right away, but there'll be email alerts you can sign up for to make sure you get told right when they come back. And uh, also follow VivTech on social media. So VivTech products on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, yeah, you can find me and Erica. I'm Herptile Dad on Instagram, Ryan McVan Facebook. Pretty sure if you go- – my uncle told me if you Google my name and then reptiles, you get like eight pages. I'm pretty sure one of those has contact information. 
or all of them. Probably. I got, <laughs> yeah, like, I got like 19 different emails between me and Erica. I'm pretty sure you can do everything short of smoke signals to get a hold of us. So, yeah, but that's uh-huh. the one. Anybody awesome. that's got questions on anything, either mo- most pretty much either of us will give anybody the time of day if you come to us with a question because. I mean, that's the point. There's no point in having the knowledge that we have if we can't share it. That's one thing that both of us are very open about and very against the gatekeeping mentality that of, of old school herpeticulture. So we're, we're more yeah, on the other side where we should tell everybody everything we've learned so that hopefully that helps them to do something. To do better, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I can't, I can't thank you enough for spending the last two, two hours with us there, boss, <laughs> yeah. but uh, – it was great. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, man, anytime you, you got open invite, anytime you want to come yeah, back. Or, this is yeah, dangerous. Right. He's got my wheels turning yeah. in my head of what I could do. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm like, I could, I could do this to the teamwork cage. Oh, yeah, yeah I could. Thanks for so, having me, guys. Yeah. And like, just that's what I would say is just keep doing what you're doing and keep spreading information and spreading knowledge. And the, the more we all grow together, it's a, it's a overused saying, but, you know, rising tides raise all ships. So that's kind of the thing is if we can all together slowly do little pieces that improve her pediculture yeah. and care for these animals, we one, we can slowly get the target off our back, which would be, can you imagine a day where US Art doesn't have to send out an alert? Like, that yeah, would be nice. That I mean, that'd awesome. be nice. I mean, <laughs> right? Like, that's nobody's stopping great. saltwater keep, like, tank people from like they aren't passing legislation for that crap so yeah, i mean they, they, they have their fights but they're like once a year one time yeah not right 70 <laughs> times a day Dang, like, Jesus. yeah so like that's it just it's all we got to do and, and i appreciate everybody out there doing their parts and, and trying to do better and learning and spreading knowledge and stopping the gatekeeping and that's yeah no it's it, this hot this is a, this is a pretty amazing time I, I look back at the time of the hobby before and when they could just fly to Africa and put something in their suitcase and come back. And I, I, I kind of feel like we missed out on that, but at the same time, the technology and the advancements and the knowledge, I mean, we are in, people don't realize that herpeticulture and and hobby is young. We are babies when it comes to keeping pets. We, we are in one of the most exciting moments that herpeticulture is ever going to have in the next 10 to 15 years. And, and, and it's pretty amazing to be a part of it. So hopefully everybody gets excited and starts you know, upping, upping the bar and, and weeding out the old mentalities and let's, let's make these animals something better, bigger and better and more important than just a thing we can have and put in a box. Yeah. hundred percent. Definitely. Good, good way to close it. I love it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Cool. Yeah. And then when you guys have another two and a half, three hours, we'll talk about one of the other bullet points we miss. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, this, that's usually how it goes because that's how we like yeah. returning guests, where it's like, good, yeah. good. Now we have like three know, shows so worth of things. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't like to stifle the conversation. It works you know, for me. It, just, it was going, so we're going to go with it. But, cool. Well, yeah. thanks for having thanks me, guys. Again, it was man. fun. Yeah. yeah, dude, we'll All catch right. up with you down the road. Sounds good. All right, we will. I guess we'll close it out real quick, Owen. And then, that is what uh, we yeah. have to do. We can't just yeah. sit here forever. You have to so close I, the show. I, I like to compact everything, so make sure uh, I'll put uh, the links to uh, Ryan and Erica's site, VivTech, in the uh, show notes. You'll be able to click mm-hmm. right to that. And mm-hmm. when you listen to this, it will be Tuesday, and you everything the will be live. Show will them, be so live. You can go check it out. Hopefully they're not sold bolts. out by the time that it comes, but uh, yeah. That, you know, or hopefully they stuff. are. I hope they have great success and they just burn through their <laughs> inventory and then restock. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, 
this is the kind of shows that I like, right? I, mm-hmm. you know, I've become more of a snake nerd, I guess, and nerdier and nerdier and reptile nerd as I, as I get older. And it's not so much about the numbers anymore yeah. and the breeding and the accolades yeah. that kind of come with that. And like just geeking out about the animal and, you know, I'm, He's got me. He's got me excited, man. I, I, I'm uh, yeah. super excited with the passion and the, you know, you know how I get with that passion, Owen. So like, I'm feeling yeah, it's it. like it. Somebody gave sugar to a two-year-old. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I understand. It's, like, it's just, <laughs> oh Christ. But yeah. no, and I and I get that. And, and you know how I get. I do. Yeah. Um, there's something uh, Ryan Todd touched on where it's like you know just seeing walls and walls of shelves, dude. If I didn't have the cages where I could like walk in and see my guys like. I can see my rough scale python sitting on a stupid fake rock that I put in there, like, yeah. or watch my team or female um, hang off a branch and just stare at me. Like, I, I would have gotten rid of this years ago. Like, I, I need to see them. I need to see them interacting and doing stuff. Otherwise, and, the hell. Yeah, and you know, I think that's what drives me with mm. this the whole podcast. Why we've been doing it for as long as we've been doing it. It's just what, like getting that information years? out there. And, you know, I, know, I think we have a huge responsibility, and I think this goes mm. to all podcasters, right? I think that we sometimes take for granted how much we can influence the reptile hobby. Right. I see it with like species we talk about, and then all of a sudden everybody's talking about these species. Yeah, yeah so I'm talking about. Whale-lips. I see it with, and it's it's not just us. I'm talking about everybody, you know. And right. and and like, there's many, many. Po- I mean, when we started, there was three. And now there's probably, I don't know, probably maybe 20, 30, whatever. But I would challenge all the podcasters out there to, you know, try to get that good information out. I think it's, uh, you know, the more and more that we talk about it, the more and more that people will, you know, sort of look at it in a different way. So, and, um, you know, discuss it. That's sort of my goal at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, good thing. So for us, uh, Moran Python Radio Network, all the different podcasts, all the different stuff, anything you want to know about what we got going on, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You want to get in touch with us, info at Morelia Python Radio. I just try to keep it short and simple. Just find the NPR network or Morelia Python Radio. All the podcasts we have under the mm-hmm. umbrella are all there, all different types, monitors, Australian guys. You know, uh, we're going to be doing, uh, you know, the herp history, all the, uh, you know, field herp and all uh, field herp. Should probably be out by the time you're listening to it. Should be. All this yeah. different stuff. Everything. So, uh, so tons of stuff there. Um, yeah, that's all I got. Go, ahead, uh, go to the Patreon. Definitely subscribe. If you subscribe to the inland level, you get to do the uh, monthly shows with me, Eric, and the interns. Ask any question you want, any topic you want. Uh, also, go to the Teespring store. You can get all the NPR merch as well as Rogue Reptiles merch, EB Morelia merch, and Carpet Fest merch. So that's all we have for everybody today. We'll say thank you all for listening, and we're going to catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. (laughs) 